You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, we're going to be talking to a gentleman that has a pretty diverse history in both video game and pinball development and operations. Uh, this guy was an operator down south in Virginia for a while. Uh, he also hacked a lot of his own games, video games and pinball games, making and creating his own games. Uh, he then went and worked for Williams in their slot machine division and then went and worked as a programmer in um, in the pinball division for Pinball 2000 Star War Episode 1 and he now works for Larry DeMar uh, doing slot machine development special, special guests special guests special, special guests special guests I'd like to welcome Duncan Brown to TopCast tonight Duncan again he has a, a very diverse history in the coin-op biz He's uh, basically done it all and uh, done a lot more than most people have done. Now, Duncan was not really willing to do much of a phone interview, so he came to my house for another project. He's working on a book of pinball back glasses, and he wanted to take some pictures of some of the games that I had in my collection. So while he was snapping photos of my back glasses, I interviewed him here. So we're going to talk to Duncan Brown right now. Uh, this is obviously previously recorded. So, Duncan, uh, tell me about your uh, how you started out in pinball. What your first memories were? You know how how all you got in, in, involved in this sick industry. Uh, my dad took me and my brother to play at arcades when we were young. And where were you growing up at the time? Well, I was in Virginia, but um, so you know sometimes we played bowling alley or something. But my distinct memories are going when we visit his parents in Tallahassee, Florida. We'd go down there, and he knew where this really good arcade was. Mm-hmm. We'd go there, and it was all EMs. Like, we played Fireball for a dime a game. Right. Three games per quarter. Um, but the thing was, his mom considered pinball machines the tool of the devil, so he actually had to <laughs> sneak out to play pinball, even though he was in his 30s or whatever at the time. Really? And uh, This was your dad? Yeah. And so your mom thought that pinball... No, 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 no. his mom. His mom, okay. His mom, right. Okay, gotcha. So here he was, all grown up with kids, and he's still having to sneak out to go play pinball, which I assume he did when he was a kid, too. But, right, right, right. Um, so we were all hooked on that, and eventually, like, we joined bowling league, so we were always around, game, you know, Sea Wolf and pinballs and all that stuff. Right. Um, back in Virginia. You're talking about Sea Wolf, the early video game? No, no, the Sea-Wolf? early, uh, you know, mechanical. Oh, the mechanical pinball from 59 from Williams. No, no, no. That, what's, what's it called? Sea Wolf? It was a mechanical, you know, one of those uh, half silver mirrored arcade games. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sea Raider. Sea Ra- okay, sure. Yeah, that's Sea Raider. Um, and then Sea Wolf later was sea the video Wolf version. Sea Wolf was the video version, right. but Sea Raider was the. And then there was one called Sea Devil, right. which came out a year later. And then, yeah. So we played all those, you know, from the earliest days. Yeah, EM arcade games. Right. Right. Um, So then when I was a teenager, maybe not even much of a teenager, like 12 or 13, I decided I wanted to get a pinball machine. So I, you know, copied down the name and address of the route operator at the bowling alley. They had a sticker on there, and I drove over there. It was a town over, 
and went in and asked if they had any pinball machines. They'd sell me, and they just laughed and laughed and laughed and shooed me away. And <laughs> <laughs> so that that didn't go too well. But eventually, I saw one uh, classified ad in the paper, and somebody over in that same area had a uh, nineteen is it like fifty six or fifty seven Williams Starfire. So I went and bought that and brought it home. You know all the classic tricks of putting it in the truck with its legs on and head on. And, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I got it home safely. And the uh, the flipper links were broken, and you know what did I know where to get you know bakelite or whatever that stuff is? So right. um, you know I ended up carving down some plastic and making new flipper links and made it all work, and you know eventually got it all running. Huh? Um, and then later on, while I was still and in then high nobody school, taught you, you just right. figured this all out on your yeah. own. Huh. I mean, my dad knew electronics, taught me how to solder and stuff, but right. and he had uh, he had done like the uh, was it the bell saw electronics course or something? It was. It was some thing where you get like a Heathkit TV to build at the end of the course. He already knew all this electronic stuff, but hmm. um, he took this course just because it was a cheap way to get a TV. And I, I got to build, the, <laughs> I got to build the whole TV and everything. Yeah. So yeah. And how long did the TV last? Oh, years. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So I, I knew my way around electronics a little bit, um, but you know, I learned, just taught myself how to read the schematics and all that. Figured it out. And then later on in high school, a friend of mine, oh, you've got a pinball machine. Well, we've got one in our basement, and we hit the glass, and it's smashed, and it's glass everywhere, and it won't run. Do you want to just take it? I was like, heck yeah. So I got my second <laughs> pinball machine. What was, was it? Do you remember? It was a Gottlieb Superscore. Oh, too bad. <laughs> well, sorry yeah, to hear that. You know, it was fun. No, that's a good thing. But again, I got it all running, got a new sheet of non-tempered glass for it again, because I didn't know any better. Right. Um, you know, cleaned all the bits and pieces out, and then eventually, oh, I don't know, it just kept going from there. But you know, so, you, so in high school, you were accumulating games. Yeah, oh yeah. And they were all basically low end freebies right. or close. I to I got it. paid like two hundred for the Starfire. Oh really? Yeah. Wow, two hundred is a lot back in whenever. Yeah. yeah. You know, for a used game, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You had two hundred dollars. Sure, I had a couple of jobs. Did you? Yeah. Okay, so what kind of jobs were you doing? Um, paper out, of course, classic, back when kids delivered papers. Right. Back when people read papers. Right, right. Um, and at the photography store in town, I ran their dark room and stuff. Oh, so you had like a, almost a real job. Yeah. And, huh, interesting. Um, so eventually I ended up at UVA at college. and by Yeah, that, wait, what's UVA? University of Virginia. I gotcha. Um, and... Uh, and by that time, I had a Bally Joust, so I brought that down and put it in the suite. There was like five rooms around a communal suite in these dorms. Right. Everybody had a great time with that. Um, and what year was this? 79 to 80. Okay. Um, and at one point, one of the little things, there's this whole relay bank in that game. Um, it has like these armature plates with tabs on them. I don't even remember what they do, but it was something for the features of the game, and one of them just broke in half, just, you know. You mean on the relay, the, the activator plate, the part right. that actually activates, moves the switches, that broke well, in half. Well, it wasn't just the switches, it was, I don't remember the game, but there was something more complicated than that. It was a, it was a big armature plate, mm -hmm. like you'd have on a, uh, you know, a gate assembly or something, but it was a whole bank of them that did something right. for this game. And it just, you know, broke clean in half, and when I took it all apart and looked at it, it was just a flat piece of metal, and it had broken in half. And I noticed several of the plates were, had two dimples in them to give it more strength so they wouldn't break in half. I thought, oh, you know, Valley figured this out. And, you know, 
somebody's already replaced a few of them that broke. So I actually, you know, wrote Bally, just, a, you know, a longhand letter and said, you know, I've got some of these plates broken, you know, how do I go about buying them? I see, you know, there's a newer design, I'd prefer that one. And then, you know, I never heard anything from them. Like four weeks later, a little box shows up to my address with like 20 plates in it. Really? Yeah. So, huh. Do you know who sent it? No idea. No. Wow. <laughs> Customer service. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I replaced all my bad plates and that thing ran great. And uh, what happened to all these games? You know, traded them and sold them over the years. I wish I had the Starfire back. I've never seen another one. In fact, for my backlast picture project, I could really use a picture of a Starfire at this point. You know, we should just mention that you're that you're taking pinball backlast pictures on on conventional film, right? Slides, right. slides actually, yes. right? Uh -huh. And you're going to at some point publish a book on this, or something, yeah. or something. You don't even really know. The, the goal yeah. is to get one insanely high quality picture of every backlast ever. Right, and your photo, you're. you're Touching them up in Photoshop, right? Right, right. The if the if, the, red, if yeah. the glass has any issues, yeah. But you've gotten real good at this. But you're not doing playfield pictures, just glass pictures. That's correct. And I, I of course, blown you crap about this yes. continually yes. because That's if correct. you're set up to do all the back glass, why wouldn't you just shoot the playfield too? Because for whatever amount of time it takes me to shoot a back glass picture, it takes about ten times as much time to do a playfield picture, right? And I don't even like how you do the playfield, right? To tell right. You the so truth. there you go. You do them too, uh, too straight on. I need it more from a player's perspective. Right. Well, to get, you know, you get an appreciation. I'm going after the art, so straight on is what you need for that. Okay, okay. And, and yes, if you want to do one more dig, back glasses are pretty much the only art form on the planet whose whole point is to be backlighted, and I'm frontlighting them for my pictures. So, <laughs> so there you go. Just get it all out in the open. No, I w wasn't even going to bring that up. <laughs> but again, I'm trying to capture the art that's there, and the only right. way to do that is to do it. And, and and you're going is what is the time frame that you're trying to do this project through? I mean the rest know, of my life. No, I mean <laughs> 1947 to oh, present. Right. The original idea was Flipper Game. Right. Do you want me to say how it all started? Sure. Um, when I came to work at Williams um, and realized that you'd go places and tell people where you worked, and they'd say, oh, wow, pinball machines, they still make those? <laughs> and you realize, wow, you know, we're, we're in an industry where everybody knows what the product is, 100% recognition of the product, and no one knows we're out there. How, how can that be? Right. So Williams needs to somehow advertise that fact. You know, they're the leader in the industry. It's up to them to keep this industry alive. Let's just go out and tell people about pinball. Um, and that just wasn't done. You know, that, that wasn't what they did. But I had this great idea, you know, like these Corvette posters or the doors of Dublin or whatever. Make this poster of every Williams pinball back glass ever. Right. About 400 of them. Make a great poster and just be this cool promo. And people would get excited about pinball again. So I went, you know, I talked to my boss about it. and Who was your boss? Uh, Larry, well, Ted Estes and Larry DeMar. Okay. They thought it was a neat idea and said, go talk to marketing. So I went over to talk to marketing and explained all this and how, you know, I... I'd like, you know, copies of all the pictures they'd taken, you know, the PR photos over the years. And her only response to me was, you're new here, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> she just laughed at me. It was the most preposterous thing she'd ever heard. And she said, oh, and we don't have those. You know, we don't have any of those pictures. So anyway, fast forward years later after pinball shut down, and I hear from someone at Midway that, in fact, when they finally let go of the PR company they'd had for decades, they sent over all the pictures that they did have to this lady, and she threw them all away. So, Oh, great. <laughs> so, would have saved me a lot of trouble. But at that point, Larry and Ted said, look, you go get all the pictures, and we'll make the poster. You know, engineering can afford 
whatever it costs to make a run of posters, you know. Right. It sounds like a great idea. So I set about getting all those pictures. Well, first I had to figure out what all the pinballs Williams ever made were, and that was not easy, but I came up with a list of about 400 of them. But there, because there was no internet pinball database at there the time? There was, but it wasn't complete, and, you know, they didn't have everything. And I had a master list of every project number Williams had ever assigned, but it didn't always say whether it was a pinball or whether it was even made or... Right, right. So, and again, I decided to limit myself to flipper games forward at that point. Right. So I was missing some of Williams' history there. So that went on, and I got well over half of them. I probably had maybe 250 of them by the time pinball shut down. And then, like, then what? <laughs> what? What do I care about a Williams pinball poster at that point? So I decided, well, I'll just get a picture of every back glass ever made. Cause Including Gottlieb, Bally, Chicago Coin, whatever. Everything. Because along the way, when I'd see a really rare or interesting game, I'd go ahead and get a picture of that, too. But I'd been skipping an awful lot of non-Williams glasses in my travels. So right. I decided to just start getting everything. And how far along are you in this project? Well, part of my problem is the whole database of what I've got, but I I, I bet I've got 12, 13, 1400 different backlogs. Already, you know, Photoshop done? No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm way behind in that process. Well, how many Photoshopped and ready ready for print? Uh, well, here's the thing. I had all the slide scanner I could afford at first um, and and got several hundred pictures through the process with that. And then I got a much, much better slide scanner, including the fact that it gets rid of the dust on the fly. So you mean now you're going back? I'm going to go back and rescan everything. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Why aren't you using digital equipment? Why are you using old school film? A, a bunch of reasons. Um, when I started um, and took the pictures on film, if I had used the best digital camera of the day, or more realistically, the best digital camera I could afford, it would be stuck at that resolution forever. Right. Whereas with film, all I have to do is buy a better slide scanner or rent a better slide scanner. Why not 35 millimeter print? Why slide? Oh, because it's much easier to scan slides. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. You can throw them in a little feeder and they just go. Yeah. So in other words, I take five pictures of every glass. I bracket my exposures. And then I can pick the best one and, and chuck the other four in a box. And then I can just stack up all the best ones in a, in a bin and scan them all. Whereas if you were doing negatives or print, you know, they, don't, they never print them right. I need to rescan the negatives, not the prints. So mm. then they're all in these strips, and you've got to figure out what the best exposure is. Right. So slides is way simpler. Huh. Interesting. Well, anyway, so uh, you were back at college. Did you right. graduate college? Well, no, there's a story about that. <laughs> yeah, and what's the story behind that? Well, um, and you're still in Virginia, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. At, at UVA, spending an awful lot of my time at an arcade there in town. Eventually to the what point... What was the name of the arcade? Noel's. Noel's, okay. Uh, eventually to the point where, you know, I'm complaining about their broken machines and their part-time mechanics never there, and they say, well, you know, if you know how to fix them, why don't you do it? So I started doing that. <laughs> and what year was this? Uh, 80, so you're doing solid state and electromechanical? Or? Well, all they had was solid state at that point. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I'm learning how to do that on the fly, too. All right. Um, and meanwhile, I'm becoming, you know, a world champion at asteroids. And wait a minute, wait a minute. World <laughs> champion? For six months, I had the world record for score on asteroids. Really? Yeah. If, if you... <laughs> If you look in the old uh, Playmeter magazines where they started putting out those speed-up kits for asteroids to try okay. to thwart people, 
the little, uh, I think it was Sparky's Electronics or something, you know, their little blurb said, Dateline, Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, someone gets a zillion, you know, points, plays for 15 hours or whatever. Well, that was me. 15 hours? Yeah. You played Asteroids for 15 hours? Yeah. And, and how, did you ever go to the bathroom in 15 you know, hours? that's really odd. I was just going to tell you, the first question everyone asked me is, how could you not go to the bathroom for 15 hours? Never mind that I battled flying saucers and rocks for 15 hours. How could you not go to the bathroom for 15 hours? That was the easy part. That was easy? It was the damn shift shooting at me that was the hard part. But <laughs> 15 hours. And when I quit with 22 extra shifts left. I started at 4 a.m. Because, I mean, I was there working on games. They closed at like 2 a.m. And then I started a game and it was just going and going and going. And I hadn't slept before that. So, I mean, I'd been up for, whatever, 40 hours or something at that point. <laughs> and, and 22 extra ships. But I figured, you know, I proved the point. I was staying, I was slowly climbing up in ships. I was not losing ground. The game wasn't getting any harder. I'd wrapped it over, you know, however many times. It was like, I don't know, it was like 7.5 million or something was my score at that point. So I figured I'd prove the point and just finally ditched it. <laughs> but I mean, the the uh, the UVA newspaper got a picture of me playing it and had a little article about it. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and what and classes? So I, what classes I, were cut? You know, based that's on this. the question my dad asked when I <laughs> yeah. come that. And he said, "How is this?" It was on a weekend, but still, he's like, "How are you getting any homework done?" Yeah, that? yeah. Uh, I called Atari and told them, and they printed it in their little newsletter and sent me a T-shirt and everything. And Great, then, nice. And one. it was took about six months, but then eventually people just started playing, you know, forever, two days, four days, you know. Right, right, right. And if you go by the Guinness rules, you know, you can take breaks. And I, I guess I was scared to leave the machine. I figured, you know, if I broke my concentration, it was all over. I'd lose all my extra ships, you know. Clearly, I, I could have let a couple of ships die while I went to the bathroom or just sat down for a second. But, you know, I was too afraid. I'd never done that before. So. And, and what was the preparation to get to this point? I just played a lot of Asteroids. Well, I, I mean, a I'd, lot. I'd had a lot of really good games, but then I finally just put it all together in one game and, and, you know, got in the zone and did it. Great. Where was this all leading? Oh, eventually, um, I, don't, I think I actually dropped out of school to work at this place full time, but it wasn't too long after that that several of us that either worked there or had worked there decided the guy wasn't, you know, he was basically stealing all the money out of the company for his own purposes. Oh, was this a company store, basically? Was this no, 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 no. It was a one guy, but he started expanding, oh. and, and he was, you know, playing shell games with the money that he was getting from the bank for expansion, building himself this insane new house, and I, I seem to keep ending up at companies where the... CEO steals all the money for his own purposes. But, <laughs> um, so anyway, we decided to go start our own place and just totally bootstrapped it. You know, borrowed all the money to open it, and um, you know, we we all loved pinball. And you know, who's we now? Well, uh, it was uh, me, Greg Johnson, Dave Furneaux, and Hercules Capos. Yes, his name really was Hercules. Wow. Um, so we were all basically at that point UVA dropouts, you know. And why did you drop out? Because this was too interesting and too much fun. Yeah, I was learning more, um, you know, repairing games. I, oh, after I beat Asteroids, I decided I wanted to know how it ticked. So I started disassembling the code, you know. I <laughs> and were you an assembly language programmer at that point? Not until then, no. <laughs> um, and I didn't have any way to read out the chips. So I rigged up a thing with uh, like 11 toggle switches and 8 LEDs and a socket. Mm -hmm. and toggled in binary through every location in each of the three chips. That's 6,000 bytes of you know, code and data. 
wrote it all out longhand <clears throat> on legal pads, hand translated it to assembly, you know, hex first, and then right. assembly. I'm really good at sight reading binary to hex now, needless to say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, was started to figure out what made it tick. Which years later came in. And what handy. was this, an 8080? No, no, 6502. It was 6502. Yeah. Okay. Years later ended up writing a thing for a researcher at the University of Denver who wanted to use asteroids for complex skill acquisition studies. But <laughs> So you mean you almost got, almost got a real job out of this. Yeah. Well, that was just a consulting job. But, right. But, I mean, all of this led to where I am today, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just, somewhere, just one step above the gutter. <laughs> somewhere in there, I... Uh, just before we left and formed our own company, I created a pinball machine called Chief Bank of Flip Galactic <laughs> Poker Dice. Right. I, uh, I bought a Time Warp in the crate closeout for 700 bucks. stripped it, never played a game on it. It was brand new? Brand new in the crate. Um, used that as the basis for everything. Ordered a bunch of Bally and Williams parts out of their parts departments. Um, couldn't find the right plywood anywhere to make playfields out of. And we were working with uh, Brady Distributing Company at that point. And I called them and said, you know, what can I do? Well, they called Bally, and Bally said, that's the weirdest request we've ever had, but we'll sell you, you know, 50 bucks a sheet. We'll sell you blank play fields. Really? So I got two. And fortunately, they already had the little notch and the uh, plunger route in there. Right, I would right. have a really hard time doing, doing that. that, yeah. Uh, but that was it. It was blank other than that. So I made one and, you know... Found out a bunch of things I didn't like how I'd done, and then used the second one. And, and but how did you get it? It's a Bally playfield fitting in a Williams cabinet that fit okay. Yeah, they're all the same size. They are. Or they were at that point. Okay, yeah. but I mean, even the cutouts and everything matched. There and... were no cutouts. I mean, it was just it, oh. other than the plunger cutout, there was nothing. Cut there was out. nothing. So I had to do all the other cutouts. Right. So the troughs and all that stuff. None of that stuff was there. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Interesting. And what was the feature of this game? The big feature was 25 drop targets in a 5x5 five five matrix, kind of like <laughs> playing breakout with drop targets. Right, I right. that whole assembly up. And you wrote the code for this using Williams system or Bally? It was Williams. So I used the System you, 6. You used System 6. In, yeah. in and again, I, I got that all out longhand on legal pads to figure out how the system worked and how the data chip for the game worked. And, mm -hmm. and at, finally, towards the end of that, I was borrowing an Apple II Plus and could actually program my own chips. I bought a prom programmer board. Right, right, right. And uh, so I could, you know, poke in all the data there and program a chip and, and got it running. Yeah, because the Apple II is, well, but the Apple II is 6502 and the Williams doesn't is... doesn't matter. It's just binary data. Oh, right, right, right. So you weren't assembling it and testing it. You no, were no, just... no, no. The game ROMs are mostly data in a Williams game. There's some code, which again, I had to hand write and just hope it worked or try to figure out why it wasn't. But Yeah, and how did you debug manual. stuff? I mean, well, you again, know... Again, just, you know sheer determination. I didn't have any tools. So it took, how long did this whole project take? Uh, probably six months. Really? Yeah. And were you satisfied with the results? Yeah. I, I so you didn't use like their operating system? You know how long? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I just systems. replaced the data chip. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And which chip was that? Was it an ICSAT 14 or something like that? So yeah. you were using the green flipper ROMs. Right, and a 2716 EEPROM. Right, right. And then, so then IC14 is the is the actual data for the game, the right. personality chip. Right. And which is, like you said, a 2716. Right. And that's where you were just changing all the code in there. And you were making all the calls. You figured out all the calls to the flipper ROMs yeah. to do, you know, update the scores yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and nobody helped you from Williams or anybody. No, no. 
Okay, you didn't know Eugene Jarvis at the time, no. and you didn't know you didn't know uh, uh, Larry Demar, no. no. so you didn't know any of these people. No. Okay. Um, it's funny. Years later, when I was at Williams, John Papaduke said, "Man, you know, if you dragged that thing up to Chicago and shown it would have been Steve Kordak at the time, they would have hired you on the spot." Right. Yeah, they would have. Yeah, for sure. What did I know? Some, <laughs> some redneck in Virginia making his own pinball machine. Right, right. It's pretty cool, though. All right, so you still have the, what was it called again? Chief Bank of Flip Galactic Poker Dice. Now, the interesting thing is, obviously, leaving this company we were working at, Noel's, to go start our own place, um, wasn't going to make the owner of Noel's very happy, and I had limited ability to move stuff. So even though I owned this thing, I, I had no way to move that game out of there before I left, but I could grab the play field. So you mean you left? Did you have the code, I assume, too? Well, that's one reason I haven't brought it to Expo yet, is because I've got Apple II discs with the code, but none of it appears to be the right code that runs the game. So I, I kind of need to redo that. Um, I hope you have good notes. Yeah, well, I have a lot of notes. I so you didn't keep a, a master set of EEPROMs? Well, you know, they would have been sitting in the game when I... Yeah, but I mean, keep game. a secondary set as a backup. If I did, I haven't run across them. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so all so, you have so is a play field. Well, except years later, I bought a used Time Warp, just, mm -hmm. you know, for good karma's sake, um, and dropped it in that. I've got it all in that now. Right, right, right. Um, and let's see. So we started our own arcade. And, and what was your arcade called? Professor Feathers. Why? Um, well, Edgar Allan Poe, who was a UVA student, by the way, so this mm -hmm. all fits, um, wrote a story called The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. So, and there's also a, 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 there's an Edgar Allan Poe-themed uh, album by the Alan Parsons Project right. um, that has a song with that name. So right. we kind of had that as our theme song. Hmm. Um, so we kind of spent the first year... Um, Paying back all these loans. I mean, we bought like seventy thousand dollars worth of games, and we had a restaurant. All on credit. Yeah, and I had a restaurant in there too, and you know. So, man, this is pretty game. impressive. That it, just some college students. You guys actually start with any of your own money? No, we had no money. <laughs> and our, you know, again, the lawyer we got to help set up this business said, "You guys are morons. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't start a business with no money." And uh, we can do it. So we did. I mean, we, we made a lot of money, but the problem was... You did make a lot of money? Well, we paid back all those loans and everything. You did. But, but the problem was, at the end of a year, we'd gotten all our big debts paid off, but then we're sitting there with year-old games, right? And right. no money to buy new ones. So, you know, business started tailing off again, you know, and so we had to borrow more money to get more games. Oh, and, it's a never-ending cycle. Right, and especially, I mean, once once you've got some debt going, then you start, you know, paying penalties and interest on the debt, and you just never get out of debt. I mean, it's tough. But our biggest problem was we were all young and idealistic, and we priced the games really cheap to bring in food customers and priced the food really cheap to bring in game customers and tried to make it up on volume. But never worked Somehow that, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> So when you say we, we price the games, you mean you were running 10-cent games or something? Uh, two games for a quarter, five balls a game. Oh, wow. That was our... We were we were insistent that that was the only way pinball should ever be priced. And then uh, to bring in business on our slow days, um, Monday through Wednesday, we set all the video games at uh, two games for a quarter. Oh, my one. gosh, really? And then we... Uh, but this is during Pac-Man era. I would yeah. think you'd be making money hand over fist. Again, we made an awful lot of money, but... 
we had really high expenses from borrowing all this money. I mean, that's right. Um, and let's see. To bring our original location was a real, you know, out of the way, and we didn't have enough money for a sign, so that was kind of a running joke. You had to look for the building without a sign to know where we were. Um, and so to bring in food customers during lunch, we decided to run a special where you get a free drink with lunch. And our reasoning was it costs us almost nothing. I mean, it's right. a couple of pennies plus the cup. It costs right. more than the syrup. So we're giving away almost nothing and bringing in customers. But that's, of course, the wrong way to look at it. What we were giving away was the single highest profit item in right. the entire restaurant. Right. So just, you know, on and on, stuff like that. We, we all learned a lot at this school of hard knocks and, right. and never applied any of it. Because, I mean, once we'd started any of this, we didn't want to piss off our customers by taking away the drink special they'd come to depend on. So we just we continue that. So three, it, it, three and a half years of that. Three and a half years? Yeah. And, and I, I've heard, what games were you running? Pinballs. Uh, you know, Black Knight, a lot of Sterns. We, we ran the games we liked. Sea Witch, Meteor, um, Stargazer, Nine Ball. Eight ball deluxe. We replaced our playfield in eight ball deluxe twice. Really, it you just, did playfield swaps? Yeah, morning, noon, and night. It was just played all the time. Of course, at two games per quarter, five balls game, it got an awful lot of play. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it was making like a hundred dollars on a good day, even at that. A hundred dollars a day. Yeah, huh. in a pinball machine. Right, it's insane. But again, it, with that kind of pricing, that meant a lot of plays, and so we ran through playfields. But um, but they were cheap. It just took a weekend to swap them in. Um, Why? What did they charge you for a playfield back then? It was like hundred bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, we had S- Spy Hunter would make a hundred dollars a day. With the video or the pinball? Video. Oh, okay. I mean, we had some videos that made a ton of money too. All right. Um, we had a, a Lean In Discs of Tron. You know, the environmental cabinet. Right. Right. Sit down Spy or uh, Sit down Star Wars. You know, we had a lot of cool games. Pac-Man, of course. And, and the, the whole place lasted, would you say, three and a half years? Yeah, three and a half years. Basically, you, you know, it was just sheer will and determination on our part and willingness to work for no money, you know, and everything. Right. We kept it up, and we finally just, you know, we, we got tired of it. We just couldn't take it anymore. Huh, and so, uh, so all four of you just decided just... Early on, one of us, Dave Frenot, decided to go back to Louisiana and become an accountant or something. So, yeah, we, we sort of bought him out. He was the smart one. He was the smart one? Yeah. Um, so uh, somewhere in the middle of all that, I designed my own video game. Um, you designed your own video game? Yeah, I, I completely reverse-engineered the Williams video game hardware, like Stargate Robotron era. And then bought a used Robotron and Stargate dirt cheap, one to use as a development platform at home and one to put the game in the store with. And it took about a year, but I wrote Alien Arena from scratch. And how did that go? Um, it sucked. I mean, <laughs> it, it, was, it was pretty bad. We had a couple of customers loved it to death, but one of the biggest problems was I, uh, I like developing code in the dark. I don't like ambient light on my screen. So what looked really good to me in my little cave at home you get it in the you know sun and overhead lights of the arcade, and you couldn't even see it. I mean, I just chosen all the wrong colors, and it's not just a matter of turning up the brightness. I mean, it needed a total redo on the colors, so that hmm. was tough. And do you have the code for that game oh, still? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, at some can point, can we run it in Mame? Yeah, it's in Mame. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, at some point, I'm going to release the source for it, but it's again, it's all kind of trapped on Apple II floppies, and I've I've got it. I've got it off textually, but I'm trying to get it to compile in a newer assembler before I release it. Huh. Um, 
and it still had some issues too. Like what kind of issues? Well, it it had a working high score table, but for some reason the code that's in the game now doesn't, and I can't figure out why. <laughs> um, and when you put this together, were you actually using an assembler at this time? Yeah, I did buy a 6809 assembler for the Apple. For the Apple, okay. Yeah. So you were actually assembling it on the Apple. Right. And, and but again, I had to assemble it in chunks and load it in chunks. and you know, I built hardware to downline, load it to RAM in the game. Really? Yeah. So you could program it on the Apple and load it into your developmental machine yeah. and that they were somehow connected? Yeah. Huh. I, bu- I built a card to go on the Apple and a card to go on the machine. Where did you come up with all, you know, I mean, to, to do that is obviously not that easy. Where's your electronics background other than making that Heathkit TV? Self-taught. Self-taught. Just bought, you know, books on logic chips and sorted out how it all worked. Huh. Okay. Man, you've had a lot of free time. I, I used to, yes, I used to have a lot of free time. Right. And then by the time I wanted to release Alien Arena to the world years later, you know, I had kids and stuff, and I've just never had the time since. Although here I am taking back glass pictures six hours from my house, so maybe I should be doing that instead. <laughs> but, um, oh, I know another problem. I, I Years ago, just before I moved up to Chicago, I sent the code to Rick Sheevy to program into ROMs and run. Right. He, he ran it at one of his game nights and discovered that I'd forgotten I had um, cut the the watchdog circuit for development. Obviously, you can't have the watchdog when you're halting the game and stuff. I had never written code to service the watchdog. It just hadn't occurred to me. I, I hadn't done that. So he threw this game in a stock system, and it's just resetting constantly. So he, he had to go cut the same little trace to make it work. But huh. So I, that's something I really need to add to it at some point. All right. All right. Interesting. All right, so now what, does this bring, what year does this bring us up to when you closed Professor Feathers? Uh, it was open from January of 82 to October of 85. Okay, so that was kind of a... Uh, I can move this game so you're not... We just we basically, yes, caught one of the first big downturns in the video game industry. You did, and how did that go? Well, you know, you saw what happened. We were in this constant cycle of not having enough money to buy new games and having to borrow money to buy new games and so on and so on. Just, you know, more of our perfect timing. Right. Oh, I again more of the young and idealistic stuff. The uh, city of Charlottesville um, instituted a meals tax to pay for this Taj Mahal convention center that they all wanted and no one else did, and it, just a whole bunch of weird politics. And it was just a complete scam, and they're putting it all on the backs of the local hotels and restaurants, which is completely unfair. And all the people that decided this owned property near where this thing was that would all go up in value. Right, it was built. Right. So. So anyway, to protest that, we refused to charge meals tax. It was a uh, 3% meals tax. Hmm. Wouldn't, wouldn't charge it. You know. Well, eventually, you know, they got after us, obviously, and eventually we always had to pay it. But we just we always made them take it down to the wire. We basically met them in court each month right, to, right. to pay our that, that month's meals tax. But that means we were eating another 3% of our potential profit because right. we weren't charging it. Oh, um, but that was, that was just us. Okay, so it's 85, and the arcade closed because you guys weren't making enough money to really make this work, or you're just right. all so tired we, of it. Right, so we basically you know, walked away from it for its debts or whatever. I mean, we, we got uh, the, some Greek guy to basically take it over. He turned it into a pizza restaurant. 
Now, when, when you were selling food, who, was, who came up with the menu for the food, and who was doing the cook? And well, we we all we all did. It was uh, subs. Yeah, and subs, okay. subs, and fast food. No fries because that would have involved expensive, you know, extinguisher hood and stuff. But, right, right. Um, so yeah, it was just you know, and it was great. I mean, we encouraged people to eat while they played. We had a huge lunch crowd. Businessmen would come in. We had tables, you know, that set at a nice height out by the machines. And then you know, four of them would play a four-player game, and I'll eat while the one guy's playing. And, you know, it was, it was great. They loved us. They were very, very sad when we closed. Yeah, but um, who wouldn't be? Yeah. So. Where was I? Oh, yeah, so he turned it into a pizza restaurant, and you know, we walked away, and that lasted a couple more years. And did he buy all the games from you, too? No, no, uh, the, the IRS got all the games from <laughs> us. The IRS did? <laughs> well, right, I mean, we were perpetually behind. You know, when, when you don't have enough money to pay all your bills, right, <laughs> one of those bills you might not pay is the IRS, the withholdings from right, the employees, right. right? And you don't pay that because you never had it. <laughs> but the, the IRS says, no, you had it, and you took it away from your employees. And we're like, no, really, we never had it. Like, we don't care. You know, you, you owe us that money. That's very evil of you not to have given us that money. So we were, you know, in a constant state with them, always paying off stuff. So when we closed, they were real keen on, you know, recovering that as much as they could with assets. And then once we closed, they were the nicest people in the world. You know, we worked at a, the, the IRS. Yeah, I mean, they worked out a payment plan. I mean... Once it was. Well, how just, long were you paying off this thing after uh, a couple of years? But were you really? Yeah. And were all of you, or just you? Yeah, well, some of us more than others. Yes. <laughs> I I took a lot of it, but um, so you know the, they got real nice. At that point, we're obviously not some ongoing scam trying to take money from them. We're just some guys that owe them some money, and they they were real nice. I mean, huh. So, where was I again? Oh, yeah, the machines went there. So he got some route operator to put in games and everything. So we all went our separate ways. Uh, Dave, for now, had already become an accountant, I think, down in Louisiana. But that was years ago. Um, Greg went and became the manager of a Food Lion grocery store in Charlottesville. Um, Hercules eventually became manager of Bodo's Bagels in Charlottesville. Hmm. Um, and then eventually... Started his own bagel restaurant down in the Norfolk, Virginia area. Um, so he, he's still in the food industry, I guess. You still talk to these people? Yeah. Herc had this weird brain fungus oh, a bunch brain of years ago. Fungus? Yeah, he caught some weird disease. And, it, and it, it, like he was in the hospital for a while and, and has like weird missing parts of his memory. He stuff. doesn't remember Duncan Brown? Well, he does, but but then eventually his email address stopped working and his stores either disappeared or moved. Or I mean, we, no one's been able to find him. Find him, although we, it's not like we've driven down to Norfolk to look. But right. he just kind of, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll track him down again someday. So I went to work at Comdial, a telephone manufacturer there in Charlottesville, in their uh, basically repair facility. But one thing they needed, they had just come out with this new key system product, you know, a system that runs a whole bunch of phones. It's like a PBX, but smaller. Mm -hmm. And they were having a whole bunch of field returns, failures, warranty problems, and they really needed someone to troubleshoot what the heck was going on. And they had tasked the repair facility with doing that. Right at the same time, I'm applying for a job there because a friend of mine works there 
and I'm obviously this great troubleshooter, and they're like, yeehaw, we can get him for nothing, and, you know, he'll do all this work. <laughs> so I did that, and, you know, I, I went to the meetings every week where they were trying to decide all this stuff. You know, I'm the representative from the repair department. And I'm in the meeting with, like, the heads of all these other departments. And I'm just some, I'm literally like this solder gun jockey from the repair department who's also keeping track of the warranty stuff and going to the meetings. And they had no idea. I mean, they, like, one time I was talking about, you know, this connector that was always getting mangled and what a pain it was to replace it. You know, it's, it's like 40 pins worth of desoldering and soldering. And the guy was like, don't you have a girl to do that? You know, they, they thought I was just some, you know, manager engineer back there who had little people to do all the actual soldering and desoldering. No, I'm, I'm not only doing this, but I'm repairing 300 other phones a week, and I've got to keep my quotas up here. They just had no idea. But So eventually I actually wormed my way into the engineering department there and was helping design and prototype all these phone systems and everything. <laughs> and, and how then, long did you do that? Uh, it must have been, oh, I don't know, this, these years aren't going to all add up, but it must have been at least three years, I think. Okay. Um, and then uh, an old friend of mine who was actually my RA at college was running a bunch of the computer systems and stuff at this little startup data processing company there in Charlottesville. And actually my wife, by that point she was already my wife, was working there, um, doing various things. And, you know, he said they, now that they're expanding, they really needed someone to take over all the computer management. They had a VAX 11785 in the basement of this house, you know, this little startup company, but they were expanding. So I went there and became, you know, eventually, I don't remember what my title eventually was, but, I mean, they got fairly big, and I was, like, you know, manager of worldwide operations or something. And, you know, we bought computers and all these sites and expanded all this stuff. And I did that for seven years. Um, and eventually, you know, they were getting big, which was fine. I mean, when, when I started there, you know, I was like employee 15 or something, you know, and, and it was, everybody was all pitching in and making this company work. And as they'd gotten bigger, we were still, you know, kind of had that whole, you know, camaraderie going. But they'd gotten a guy in there, an XGE guy, who, you know, wanted to take the thing public and, you know, just make lots of money that way. It was no longer about the job it was right. all about making the balance sheet look right and stuff and just he was you know all kinds of reasons it was getting very unpleasant to work there <laughs> so i you know I, other places that ran vaxes around town bms you know i started asking around to them and a place called ge fanuc it's a joint venture between ge and a japanese company called fanuc they really needed someone to run their some of their computer systems but also their phone system and we had by that time, gotten a big phone system at the place I was, and same kind they were about to buy, so I knew all about that. Hmm. So they hired me on there to do that, and I ended up, you know, lots and lots of system installations there as they got bigger and stuff. And when I eventually left there, it actually took three people to replace me. But, you know, but so I was very happy there and doing quite well, but then um, I had gone to Wild West Pinball Fest in 1996 out in Arizona with my wife. So this is the 90s we're up to now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'd gone out there to Arizona, Dangerous Dan, you know, and great right. time, you know, wrists sore by the end. But so this whole time you were still playing pinball? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you own any? Well, there was a period after Professor Feathers where I was really dirt poor and scrambling to even survive. When you own a business that's not paying you any money, but it's a restaurant, mm -hmm. hey, you eat for free. Yeah, eat for free. Now, don't tell the IRS that. They probably want to account for all that. But 
But again, you're never going to actually starve and die in that right. particular case. But then once I stopped doing that, then there was always, you know, the fear of starving and dying. I mean, it was... <laughs> so it was tough. I mean, so yeah, the idea of having enough money and room and time to own a pinball machine didn't happen again for several years, but probably into the early 90s. Right. Um, and then I started collecting video games and pinballs again. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm quite happy at GE, but I go out to Wild West Pinball Fest, and there had been this whole thing um, where Safecracker had recently come out. And, you know, I had been posting to Rec Games Pinball at that point and everything, and they had... Yeah, when did you start on the Rec Games Pinball thing? Early 90s, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you could probably... Find out. Yeah, yeah, Google my first post there somewhere. But yeah. um, I actually I started out on uh, RGVAC, and then eventually... Oh, the, on the video the, game side. Yeah. Right. Um, so there had been this thing where they had all the speech calls from Safecracker, or a lot of them on their website, but they mm -hmm. had paid some company to do this whole website. And so there was a speech call that said, tokens, the stuff dreams are made of. But the link for it, the company that had done this, had listened to, listened to the speech call and written the link as Duncan's, the stuff dreams are made of. Which I thought was, you know, appropriate, of course. Of course I'm the stuff <laughs> dreams are made of. But it seemed really odd. So when they posted this, I posted to the pinball news group, you know, what, what is that supposed to say? I didn't know what it was supposed to be tokens. And, um, and I guess, you know, uh, Larry DeMar had seen that and laughed and everything. So when he saw my name tag out at Wild West Pinball Fest, he introduced himself. Oh, hi, you know. And, and, and by the way, just Larry DeMar was head of pinball at, right. at Williams right. at the time. Right, right. And he had seen, I guess, posts over the years where I had, you know, reverse engineered the very code he had been writing years before in Stargate and Robotron. And right. So I guess they had kind of noticed me that way. Um, unbeknownst to you. Unbeknownst to me, yeah. Oh. And so, you know, I talked to him there, and we got along real great and everything. And then, uh, I don't know when it was, I guess it was maybe six or eight months later, I had posted something to the Pinball News Group looking for a ROM that I didn't have, and Ted Estes actually emailed me the binary I needed. It was some sound ROM. And at the end of his email, he said, oh, by the way, if you're ever looking for a job, let me know. <laughs> Like, and Ted Estes is actually took over Larry's position, right? So now Ted is head of pinball. Pro he's head of the pinball programmers at Williams, right? And and also slot machines and slot machines, right? The, simultaneously, the right. mechanical slot machines, not, right. not the video not slots, the video slots, right. because they were trying to infuse some creativity into this new product they were coming out with, and they thought, oh, let's throw them in with the pinball programmers, right? Right. right. Um, which actually created all kinds of friction between the people that were that came from the slot department. And it, was, it was an interesting uh, scenario. But, um, so, I, you know, I wrote him back and said, man, if you'd asked me that 15 years ago, I'd already be at your doorstep before, you know, the electrons had dried on my screen. But, you know, I, <laughs> I got, you know, a mortgage, a wife, a kids, you know, a job, you know. Right, right. Um, but I said, you know, it's not to say I'm not interested, but, you know, it just it's way more complicated. So we kept talking, and eventually... They had me up there for an interview, and, you know, my wife really, you know, she'd been in Charlottesville for 20 years and really liked everything and had moved from Rochester, New York, or Fairport, New York, where it's really cold in the winter and didn't think... Really want to go back. Yeah, yeah, you know, she just didn't like this idea at all, but, you know, she humored me. Okay, go for your interview, you know, because <laughs> I, I thought, at least, you know, they're flying me up there, I get to see the pinball plant, you know, when am I ever going to get another chance like this? But we talked, and, it, you know, they they understood my situation, and, you know, the cost of living is higher up there, but so maybe they could offer me a little more money, and, 
you know, we eventually worked it out where I was like, yeah, you know, I really got to do this. I mean, it, it just seemed like destiny. Every All these weird things I'd done through my life that had just been yeah. for no reason at all. Designing my own pinball machine, designing my own right. video game. It all was obviously pointing towards this, this. as my destiny. So right. I went up there and did that. And the way they snuck me in, they didn't have any pinball openings, but they had an opening for a slot programmer. And they especially needed someone with reverse engineering skills. Because, because you're looking at IGT code or something? Well, a, a machine that should prove that IGT's patent was invalid as long as how they thought it worked really was how it worked, but they needed someone who could figure out how it worked. And did you? I did, and it was, but it was kind of... By the time they thought of that, the judge was so pissed at them that he wasn't willing to listen to any He was arguments. pissed at Williams, you mean? Yeah. Why was he pissed at Williams? Because he thought they were just had were obviously ripping off this patent. This judge... Well, wait, you should back up. What, the, 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 the IGT was suing Williams over mechanical slots, right? Uh, correct. Right, because it was, it was infringing on what was the, the patent? The Telness patent. Which Telness? Basically a way of mapping a large number of numbers so that you can get fine gradation of the odds to a smaller number of physical stops on the reels. So in other words, you have, say, 22 stops on the reels, and to normally it's one out of 22 shot. I mean, historically, each symbol has an equal probability. But Telness you know, had this amazing idea of, you know, what if we simply said, you know, you had 500 numbers to choose from, and we'll put in, you know, a couple of one symbol, so that's a one out of 250 shot, and a whole bunch of another, and, and we just, once we decide what symbol based on that big, huge set of numbers, then we just map it to the equivalent physical thing on the reel. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to get really long odds on reels. And Williams did rip this off from IGT? No. Um, basically, when Telnus invented that patent... It and was, who's Telnus? Just some guy. I don't know okay. his name is. Um, his last name's Telnus. Right. Um, when he does, thought of that, it was not legal. I mean, if you had 22 stops, there had to be a 1 out of 22 shot. This, this idea of there being different odds was kind of considered cheating. I mean... Right. In other words, if you made a reel with 500 stops on it, the cabinet would be you know, two stories tall, and you'd go, oh my god, look at that huge reel. Right, There's no way I'm ever going to get that jackpot symbol. Yeah. So this, this was kind of this misdirection. That, But anyway, the, the idea of creating odds like that, long odds for things, was incredibly well known. I mean, it, it was not unique in the idea of probabilities or math or anything. But somehow he got a patent on it. And basically, you know, this, this very well-known idea, as applied to slot machines, right. becomes this patentable idea. So one thing Williams was looking at is this old, you know, gr well, not even gray market. It was like illegal slot machine where they got around the laws that said you can't have a game with reels by using those little uh, elevator things where you rear project a symbol. Oh, right, right, right. Um, is that what they were doing? This this other company back in the sixties or whatever seventies. Um, it must have been seventies. Yeah, they would they used three of those to project. Some, you know, they replaced the one two three four strip inside this thing with a you know cherries and bars right. and things. So it was you know it was this quasi legal game. But you know, looking at the pay table, they had to be doing something like that for the odds, in which I proved they actually were. But it was too late. So anyway, Williams came up with a completely different way to do long odds. You know, wasn't this look up in a table thing that Telnus was doing? 
Um, but in their wisdom, they decided they wanted to hold, you know, they, they got the venue changed to Chicago, figuring they'd have a friendly judge instead of Nevada where they understand slot machines. Right. So they got a judge who didn't understand slot machines, didn't really understand how patents worked. Because his line of thinking was, if somebody does gets a result and somebody else gets the same result, they must be violating the patent. You know, regardless of how they got there. Regardless of how they got there, right? But how they like, got there is the whole point of the patent. So. You're right. It's like driving to Chicago through Detroit or driving to Chicago through St. Louis. You know, right. you're both getting to Chicago, but two different ways. Right. And and yeah. he's saying no. You and it basically he's like, you know, you guys with your slick lawyers are trying to pull a fast one on me here. You know, they brought slot machines to court and charts, and you know, it just none of that had any impression on him. He was convinced. So by the time they came up with this just irrefutable evidence of prior art in a slot machine for this idea that wasn't patented because it was illegal, you know, it was too late. And what was the outcome? I mean, what did Williams have to do? Williams basically had to stop doing slot machines with long odds. I mean, they had to do, you know, however many stops, that's your odds, and you can't give big jackpots that way. So their machines weren't as exciting. Ironically, that forced Williams to concentrate more on video slot machines where IGT wasn't doing anything. Right. Where they could do long odds, because the patent was written talking about reels, physical reels. Right. And they added in the dash of Williams' humor and creativity and stuff, you know, with uh, Filthy Rich and uh, um, what was they had one, a fishing game that was real. Real Men. Real Men. Real popular. Um, And just started eating IGT's lunch. I mean, eventually, years right. later, because of that. So it's just interesting that that yeah, IGT forced them into another into another corner, which they excel. Yes, and to which they could actually compete very well. Right as the industry was in in any event moving from physical reels to video, largely right. never it'll never happen completely. But right, you know, so that was just interesting. So anyway, I got in there working on the spinning reels, did a bunch of stuff, but also you know, were you there during their? Operating system dilemma here in Detroit. They some guy found a way. Right, and that was after. That was after. Yeah. Okay, okay. Do you know anything about the history of that? Uh, just the the operating system they had was not very well written. I mean, it was one of these things where who wrote it? I, I don't even know. But okay. it was one of these things where some engineers had kind of thrown this together so they could get to a trade show and show off this proof of concept. And it was a huge hit at the trade show, and the marketing people all came back and said, "Okay, let's start shipping it." <laughs> you know, and so it just it got worse from there. It, it had kind of a bad, not completely thought out history. By the time I got there, they had actually taken the original same source code and split it into video and spinning reel, and they were going off down their separate paths. All right. Um, so I was doing the spinning reel stuff. And other people were doing the video stuff. And I don't even know which one. I think it was video that had those issues in Detroit. It was the, the double-up thing, right? I don't remember the exact I, thing. I think but it, you, I, somehow you could put a bill in and hit some sequence of numbers. Oh, that was different. Yeah, that was another thing. That yeah. was another thing? Yeah. That they, was, they had several things. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, did you know anything about that one? No. Again, that was all after after, the, after yeah. you were out. What I did know was while I was fixing code in the spinning reel slots for Delaware, who has these really weird online system restrictions where the... All the machines are controlled by a master central system. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the casinos have to close at, I don't know, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something. And by golly, they do. They're not going to depend on each, you know, racetrack manager coming in and shutting down. The central system kills it, cashes it out right, right at the time. 
So there were always all these weird, you know, you got to keep track of time things, and they always had weird bugs with daylight savings time and stuff. So sure. I, I got in there to fix the daylight savings time stuff because Williams kept fixing it in spring only to have it break in fall. And, you know. Right, right, right. So I fixed all that, and I looked at that, and I was like, yeah, you know, there's you got this horrible problem coming up on year 2000, and it's totally not going to handle that right. This thing totally blows up on the year 2000 because they're only doing two digits and weren't handling it, and it's just going to go completely wrong. And in fact, the the system we had to test with was we didn't even handle it correctly. But I had to kind of dope out that this is what it would do if I had a system that did work. It's not going to work. So I fixed that and told you know we had these weekly conference calls with Delaware. And I told him, yeah, you know, it's, you need to fix your tools. And I fixed our code, and everybody else probably ought to look at this too. You know, IGT's in on the conference call. Everybody who's there. So I fixed that, and as far as I knew, it was in. But come to find out, they had fixed it and sent it to Delaware and made all the chips, but had never kind of gotten around to putting them in the slot machine. <laughs> this was two years. I mean, this was quite a while before I left Williams, because yeah. I was still doing slots. It was over two years they'd been sitting there and never done anything. So after Pinball shut down, and I at the time I had just started working at LED, I hear on the radio, yeah, only seven things in the whole U.S. actually failed in Y2K, and one of them was Williams slot machines in Delaware. They all croaked, right? It was <laughs> stroke of midnight. <laughs> and they had to rush out there and get all these chips in, which in Delaware is really, you know, you got to have a cop standing there when you change chips. Right, right, right. Somebody so, from the Gaming Commission has to supervise Right, and they, the they have thing. a thing called a Cobatron that matches. It's way more involved than a checksum, but it's basically checksumming the chip. And, right. Yeah. So for every machine, this whole squad one of people, people has to go yeah. and do all this. So it was, it was a huge fiasco. So while I'm doing all this slot stuff, I'm palling around with all the pinball guys. And because you're really trying to get in at Williams into the pinball division right. and not the slot machine. Right. So I'm doing my job, but I'm also, you know, learning everything I can about pinball and, and just, you know, immersing myself in that. Um, so then when Pinball 2000 starts, you know, they start working on that. Um, and they're going to rearrange things and maybe hire a couple people. I'm like, yeah, yeah, raising your hand. Yeah. And then, you know, there was also some reshuffling going on with the slot department. Okay, I need the lights again. Yeah. I'll probably need them on and off between each machine. Um, you basically, they were taking slots back away from pinball again. Okay. Because at the time, just to give it, pinball was financing the slot machine development, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, slot machines were losing money big time, and pinball was the company... <laughs> making money. And the, there's the whole thing with spinning off Midway, too, which happened in that time. Frame. Well, what was the spinning off of Midway? What do you mean by that? They decided it was Williams, Bally, Midway. They did video games, pinball machines, slot machines. They did everything. And they decided they wanted to um, make Midway a separate company. Why? Um, well, frankly, to, to make people money. You know. What do you mean? By spinning Midway off as a separate company, people in positions of power at Williams Valley Midway could make lots of money. Hmm. The stock split and the buyouts of contracts, and you know maybe there was some reason they gave the shareholders that even made sense, or might even been real about why that would be a good thing. I mean, historically, Williams had always done all these different things, you know, if pinball was down, maybe bumper pool is where they made their money, but I mean, they were always very diversified and making different stuff, so that no matter which industry was up or down, they'd always stay open, and if you start splitting that apart, you kind of lose that. Hmm. So, for some reason, 
pinball and slot machines stayed together, and Midway went off on its own separate company. Um, and this is about the time, you know, the video slots are starting to make some money, and so the slot machine division is actually starting to make money, whereas pinball is starting to not make money. And then what year is this, about 80, 98? 97 is when I came there, so yeah, 98. Was, yeah. Um, so, you know, pinball is going to try to reverse its fortunes with Pinball 2000. Everybody's really excited about it. And were you in Pinball 2000 right from the get-go? Not the early, early stuff that was kind of being developed as a side project, no. But then about the time they decided to, Midway had been spun off and they decided to take slots and pinball and totally separate them again. You know, I was going to have to go with slot people over to the slot building and not be able to sit with all my pinball friends anymore. You mean you're going to California Avenue, right? Well, they're both, well, one's on, uh, whatever that side street is, Kedzie or something, but, um... So, I mean, they're just right across the street from each other, or, okay. or even beside each other. But, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting in with all the pinball guys. Right. Um, so I'm very eager to get one of the couple of s- slots open on uh, for jobs on Pinball 2000. And So, I, you know, the running joke was I was telling Larry, you know, I'd wax his car every day. And, you know. <laughs> And they, you know, they just had some other people, as much as they liked me, some other people they thought would be a better fit. We're going to hire them, but fortunately for me, that all didn't work out. And like at the last minute, before I was going to have to go to my doom in the slot department, um, they ended up taking me, and I got on the Star Wars Episode One team with Cameron and John Papadou. Well, and in slot machines, what were what uh, what environment were you programming in? It was 80, 80, no, sorry, 81, 88, or 81, 86. So assembly language, right? Yeah. And then um, one thing I did, they had that dot matrix assembly in the top of their slot machines. That, sure. That ran on a separate... The slotmation, as they call Dotmation. it. Dotmation. Dotmation, sorry, dotmation. Yeah. Slotmation would have been a much cooler word. Yeah. They, they should have used that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was running on like a 68HC12 or something. So I was doing all that to a rewrite of that for the new version of the hardware. So I was doing a lot of stuff. Um, but then, uh, so I started, you know, I, I, I got my chance at Pinball 2000. And then at the same time, they were trying to bring this whole system up in addition to the games. And Tom Uban really needed someone who knew weird bits and bytes to be able to get the thing to boot off a PC motherboard without things like complaining about lack of keyboard or showing a BIOS screen. Right, right. So, you know, they looked at buying a BIOS that they could hack, and, you know, the licensing costs for that are extreme and stuff. So I I sat down and figured out how to make boot ROMs that would make all that happen. Hmm. Now, how come in Pinball 2000, though, you don't... I mean, you're using the, the boot ROMs, I assume, are in the prism card, right? right? right. But, so they're not actually on the motherboard. Right. In other words, how do you take a motherboard that has standard off-the-shelf BIOS right. is trying very hard to boot into Windows, because that's what, what, it, does. It, what it does, Yeah. and make it not do that and do everything we want it to do, and also make it not look ugly while it's doing it. I mean, I don't know if you've seen games out there. I think even, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but some early Williams... Slot machines where they switch to Linux. I mean, you get this ugly BIOS screen up there for a couple of seconds. We, right. we got rid of all that. We made all that not happen. And that was all you're doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Tom Uben helped get me down the path, but then he had other stuff to do, so he left me alone to go do that. And then we worked together to put it all integrated with the rest of the stuff that had to go into Prism ROMs. But right. yes, yeah, so I. Had and what language out. was that all written in? That was in basically 8088 assembly, because I mean, that early in the BIOS, 
you have to be basically stuffing bites in in known yeah, yeah. places in known orders. You can't use C or anything. It, it, right. it really had to be all but hand coded. Right. The really early stuff, and then we jumped into C at the earliest opportunity. Hmm. Um, but that I just that's my favorite error of all time on PCs: keyboard error. Press F1 to continue. Right. Because you can't. Right. Keyboard error. There's no keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> the, the stupidest error message ever. So yeah. we, we got around all that. Um, and then I had to keep doing that. Every time we changed motherboards, I had to just tweak that code to be able to also work with the new motherboard. Right. Um, well, we, now, have you heard about the guys that have now come up with uh, a Pinball 2000 emulation package? I've heard about that. They, they're, they're like they're running it on a regular PC right. without a Prism card. Right. And, you know, and, and you know they're, they're, they got it all working, too. Right. You know, so That's is that impressive? More power to it. I'm right. very impressed. You are impressed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, it, it wasn't like Williams wanted to um, make sure collectors in the future couldn't have motherboards. I mean, we the idea was as each new motherboard would come out, we tweak the code and it would work on all new motherboards. Right. So you just you know you'd buy whatever the latest one was, and we'd have already adapted it to work. And you know, they shut us down after two games. We never got a chance to do that. I was working on the next motherboard when we shut down. Right. So, right. Right. Well, anyway, so what? And, and you and you're like king of the conspiracy theory guy, right? That one, that window. Okay, you're king of the conspiracy theories at, at Williams. Well, I used to be. I've calmed down a little bit. You've calmed down a little bit. Can, yeah. Can you talk about any of them, or do you? Well, I just. Not? You have to ask yourself why the absolute leader in the pinball industry, just runaway leader in the pinball industry, who had all the talent, all the patents, all the creativity would just turn off the switch. Right. You, you know, they thought they weren't making enough money at pinball and they were making more in slots and, you know, forget 50 years of Harry Williams' history that, you know, it's hard, cold business. They just, you know, right. they don't want to be in that position. But there was some serious value to what they were sitting on and they literally threw it away. I mean, they just turned off the switch and threw it all in the dumpster. And they eventually got, you know dribs and drabs of money from various people, but nothing, you know, selling that at a, you know, perceived loss at a fire sale price as a running operation would have made them so much more money than they ended up making, plus kept some people employed, kept, you know, vendors in business, a lot of vendors went under, right. you know, people that stamped metal and made plastics and rubber ring, all these people, just all of a sudden their, you know, their main buyer was gone. So it just it was it was not a well thought out decision. So you, you have to ask yourself what was the thinking behind it. Well, what was well, it? Well, no one knows. I mean, that's where all the conspiracy theories come from. But. Right. But what were some of the conspiracies that you know the ones that you liked? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, one has to imagine that perhaps they were just humoring us when they said, "Sure, we'll give Pinball 2000 a shot." That they just had this plan to shut it down. And then, lo and behold, Pinball 2000 was successful. Had the first profitable quarter in a couple of years. It was this huge hit, and well, well, too bad. You know, we had planned to shut it down. We're going to shut it down. So it, it just made a lot less sense under those circumstances. Why are you shutting us down when we succeeded? Yeah, that, the, that was what really hurt. And the thing, in like with your game with Star Wars, um, where they had, they raised the they had all those pre orders from overseas right and then they raised the price and do the exchange they had all these orders canceled right the 
they they decided they had underpriced Revenge from Mars. I don't know if that's true or not. But they had decided they had made a mistake in pricing that. So they were going to fix that mistake twice on Star Wars Episode One. They would put the price where it ought to be and get back all that money they felt they were owed for all the Revenge from Mars by, you know, <laughs> on each Star Wars Episode One. Well, people were pretty price sensitive in general, and they were really price sensitive on Pinball 2000 because it was a lot more money. I mean, it was a more expensive game. Right. But we sat there and said, look, here's why. You know, look at all these cool things we've done. Plus, it's a kit, you know, kittable and all this, right. you know, it's all this great stuff. It's, it's really worth more money. It's an investment in a platform, you know. And everyone bought it. And they're like, okay, you know, we'll spend a little more. And they bought, you know, thousands. But it was like 7,000 or more Revenge from Mars. They hadn't sold that many of a game in forever. Right. And they were all set, you know, Star Wars was going to do 10,000 easy, you know, because the pre-orders ran as this big movie was going to be big. Now, obviously, the movie sucking didn't help either. Did and you know the movie sucked before no. you saw it? No. So you guys didn't get to see any of that? No, we got to read the scripts. But That's it? Yeah. So you didn't know Jar Jar was a big bag of nothing? No. Yeah. Um, so... <coughs> what was I saying? Um, oh... So, so you had the, the price being raised to the point where people screamed and took away orders. Right. Um, you also had the fact that um, they were releasing it in the wrong order. They, they always released Europe first, always. Right. Well, the movie was releasing in the U.S. first and then Europe. So to try oh. to catch the waves of fan excitement, they right. had to release it in the other order, and they wouldn't. They would not do it. Why? So it's just not how they did it. Right. Um, so you have all these people in the U.S. excited about Star Wars for about two weeks. Meanwhile, the games are shipping over to Europe where no one's ever heard of the thing or seen it. And then by the time they release it over here, you know, the fan excitement's gone. I mean, it, everybody was thinking, oh, it's going to be the next Titanic. I mean, this movie will play for a year. And, you know, it just it didn't happen. Right. There was some excitement, and it was, you know, the movie was okay. Right, right. Um, but... It wasn't what it could have been. So we just, you know, missed all the opportunities for sale that way. Right. Um, but that isn't really part of the conspiracy, is it? Well, no, just that, you know, by doing... Basically, everything they did, whether intentionally or not, served to decimate the sales of Star Wars. After and you think this was potentially on purpose? Well, I, who knows? I mean, raising the price to the point it hurt and people canceling orders and not backing down. What's the sense in that? Right. You know, at, at some point when they take the orders away, you got to say, oh, well, maybe I made a mistake. Not, well, screw you. You know, pay it or you can't have it. Right. right. You know, the, the line of reasoning was, well, if we can't sell it for that, it's not worth being in business. But that's a lie. We make money on revenge at the price it sold at. I mean, right. You know, sure, it's not worth selling a product at a loss just to stay in business, although Professor Feathers did that. But, <laughs> um, but you know, at some point, you know, it's, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face there. So, right. so who knows? No, nobody quite knows. So in Pinball 2000 and Star Wars, I mean, were you having fun working there? Were yeah. you putting in, like, incredible hours yeah. to do this? Yeah, it was great. I mean, best best job I ever had. Oh, it was? Yeah, I mean, and Cameron and I were, you know, in offices next to each other. It kind of sucked um, because of all the secrecy. Cameron Silver, you yeah. mean, right. 
because of the secrecy about the film, and we're developing this way. Yeah, you were behind a door, or right? Something. So you know, we missed out on the camaraderie with all our other coworkers. You know, we'd only see them at lunch or whatever. But right, and you guys really couldn't talk about it. No, I mean they had to sign contracts that basically said, if word gets out about this movie, and it negatively affects what we thought were going to be the take of the movie, mm-hmm. and it was you that let the word out, we are going to sue you for the money we think we lost. So if we think the movie's going to make $100 million and word leaks out and it only makes $70 million, we're coming after you personally for the $30 million. I mean, that's what we signed <laughs> All right. to, to keep a secret. But, you know, so we got to go to Skywalker Ranch and sit on the porch and read the script. We couldn't take it with us, but we could make notes and stuff. And we got, you know, all the, the still pictures they take of people in costumes and little snippets of the movie and stuff. We got access to all that. Right. Um, I mean, we had a lot to work with. It. I think, I think we did a really good game. I know the the pinball nuts all hate it. I mean, it's just they they don't like the game at all. But the fact is, when we took it to a big Star Wars convention just before the movie opened, where yeah, it represented the movie well, and the Star Wars people probably they loved it. Ate it up again. It was one of those. They still make pinball machines, and then right, it's right. pinball two thousand. They hadn't heard of this. These aren't pinball people. They loved it, and. That movie, I'm oh, sorry, that uh, that pinball machine stayed at or near the top of the Playmeter equipment pole for like three years. I mean, that that earned money for operators just again right. and again and again. People loved that machine. Your average player loved that machine. And that's who we were making it for. We were, we were not making it for the pros. Right. I mean, the idea, a lot of people's complaint about it is, oh, all you have to do is keep hitting it up the middle. Just you know, keep hitting the ball up the middle. That's all you have to do in the game. Where's the fun in that? And they're missing the point. We made it so that if all you did was hit the ball up the middle, which is what we saw clueless newbies doing, right. the game would progress and do something. If, right. if all you knew how to do was flip the flippers together, which sends the ball more or less up the middle, you'd have fun. We tried to add stuff you know, beyond that, which a lot of people missed or didn't care enough about. But, I mean, we, we tried to make it so that... If you knew nothing about pinball, but like Star Wars, you would have a blast playing that game. And I think we were very successful at it. So now, what about um, George Gomez? George yeah, Gomez's yeah, yeah. complaint about it was, you know, it was just a big movie projector, and that Papa Duke didn't really, you know, you're supposed to leave black on the edges, and Papa Duke put colors right to the edge, so you could it looked like a TV set inside the game. What is your uh, all Absolutely true. It's, yes, he's got a complete point. Now let's look at the Playmeter equipment poles on Revenge from Mars versus Star Wars, and which one plummeted and dropped off the face of the Earth after a year and was never seen again earning money for operators, and which one kept earning money for operators. <laughs> I mean, that's that's right. what we were making it for. Right. But now, did, was Papa Duke, I mean, proud of this of this game when yeah. it all got done? Yeah. And yeah. We were all very proud. The Star Wars people who came to play it, you know, before we even took it to Denver, yeah, loved it. I mean, they were just agog over it. They all came to see it at Denver. They all brought all their spouses and friends over Right, there. right. You know, they were just blown away. And did you, did you get to keep a Star Wars? Yes. You did. Yeah. Now, when you were in the slot machine department, did you get to keep any slot machines? <laughs> no, for some odd reason. They no, didn't. they don't let that. It's not how it works. Do that. No. So you would get an engineering copy of... The uh, you know of the pinball, but they wouldn't give you an engineering copy of any slot machine. Yeah. Well. Now the way the engineering copies work, just as a uh, point of trivia. Hold on. Yeah. So anyway, what were we talking about? Uh, machines. So 
you know, they wanted the people, the main people that worked on a game to have you know, the ability to get one of the games they worked on, because that's cool. Oh, which reminds me, they knew what made me tick. Uh, part of hiring me, they gave me as a signing bonus, they gave me a game. What would you get for a signing bonus? Um, they gave me a couple of choices, and the one I picked, oddly enough, was Junkyard. Um, Why? Oh, you gave it away to somebody. Right? Yeah, there was a, a guy I worked with at GE Fanuc. You know, his son was just recovering from leukemia, bone marrow transplants and everything. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't like any of the games they're offering me, but this one looks like it would be the most fun for a kid to play. So I got that and brought it back to Charlottesville and gave it to that guy. Gave it to him. It's pretty yeah. nice of you. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you couldn't get a slot machine, huh? No, no. But with the games, um, like the main people that worked on a game that would usually get one of the games they worked on, then people that worked on a lot of games would just basically be in a pool to eventually get a game, you know, like the dot guys or whatever. Right. Um, but if they just gave them a game, then the IRS is going to want, you know, $3,000 of income taxable. So instead they'd sell you a game. Right. But but if they sold it at a huge discount, again, the IRS is going to say... Oh, you know, right. But So what they did was they'd take the sample games, the early route games and stuff, the test games, and sell those and just call it engineering scrap for like 100 or 2 Right. So then, you know, you had to pay a little bit of money, but... Yeah, but you basically you got a medieval madness for a hundred bucks, right? You know, or whatever, right? Right, right, right. And how? And you got? Did you get a lot of games that way? Well, I only worked in one game. <laughs> so I yeah, got but, one but game. I. It seemed to me like I bought. What didn't I? Okay, so wait, maybe we should back up. Tell me about the last day of work at Williams. <sighs> well, tell me about the, the the expo. I remember seeing you at expo. You were right. real jubilant. Right. We had Star Wars. We had rushed in the last week and come out with a swipe card system for the tournaments. It was all automated. You know, look right. at the cool things you can do. They're hooked together with Ethernet. Right. Now that it's a PC motherboard, look at all the stuff we can do. You know? right. We can set this up. Other people can run it. You know, Just be an optional thing. You know, everybody's having fun. Expo's great. Um, we were done with Star Wars. We could move back into the real world now, out from behind the closed door. So right. in the days before Expo, I packed up my whole office. And on Monday, you know, I was going to move back to a real office and be with everybody else. So that Monday, or sorry, at George Gomez at Expo, he's saying, you know, doom and gloom. And we're all like, what, what the hell? We haven't heard any of this. And well, so you guys were clueless. Totally out of left field. Okay. <laughs> But you know how we're Williams. You know, you got Gary Stern has just bought Stern, and you know how could that possibly work? It's you know the also ran pinball company versus the behemoth. You know what do you mean we're going to go out of business? Right. So we get in Monday, and there's all these rumors flying around. You know, and Jim Patla, who's now managing a lot of stuff there, is like, you know, don't listen to all this crap. You know that. He doesn't know where these rumors are coming from. As oh, it, he said that about... Yeah, and I, I really think he didn't. I mean, no one had told him. Well, did him. you hear that there was a phone call made to Rob Burke at the front desk? Williams is closing on Monday. You need to know this. Goodbye. Wow, no, I hadn't heard that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Burke, Burke told us that. You believe that? So the rumors... Somebody knew, and somebody was trying to spread the word. Obviously, you know, um, you know, George knew. Right. Well, now, as it turns out, talking to him later, I guess, you know, he has friends in various parts of the industry, you know, vendors and things, and and Williams is shopping around, you know, mildly shopping around. Hey, you want to buy a pinball company to these people? Right. They didn't go to any. Again, part of the conspiracy theory. They didn't go to anybody that would actually want or be capable of buying the company. They just went to <laughs> bit, bit players so they could say, you know, they tried to sell the company. Right. So George is hearing from all these friends, hey, they're trying to sell your company. So to him, the writing's on the wall. 
Yeah. Oh, none okay. of these people are going to buy it, so they're just going to shut it down. That's, so that's where that came from. But again, none of us oh, knew any of that. Okay. That's why he knew and we didn't. Gotcha. So Monday, rumors flying around, you know, there's a meeting at 10.30. No, there's not. You know, what? there's all these strange rumors. And then um, I was back in the art department, and this was the day they were going to go out to, I guess it's TAG, the silk screening place. Yeah, they made play fields. Right, and start talking about what colors they're going to use for wizard blocks. Right. You know, Yalsi's done some sketches, and they're going to take those out there and, you know, get their Pantone charts out and everything. So they're all scheduled to go out there and, you know, Tag, I guess they talked to Tag, oh, you know, when should we come out? And the people at Tag said, oh, you know, Williams purchasing or somebody called us and said, we're not supposed to talk to you till after your meeting. We're like, what meeting? You know, nobody has told us about any meeting. But now our vendors know something's up and we don't. And sure enough, at 10, our access card stopped working, our computer network access went away, and still nothing. Still nobody's told us about any meeting. They got the timing wrong. I mean, the IS department was told it was 10, but they had decided it would be 10.30, and the people are actually holding the meeting. So it was just, you know, typical. Williams can't get anything right. So eventually at 10.30, we all troop down to the cafeteria, and they basically say, see ya. And who, as, was, as a, who said see ya? Uh, Ken Fidesna, and who else was there? I think Ken was the highest one in charge. Hmm. He was like the... And Larry was long gone at this point, Well, right? well a month or two, yeah. Oh, okay. Because did he see the writing on the wall? Well, basically, he didn't like the way things were going, and went to management there and said, look, you know, you're treating us like crap. You're not, you know, this, this, none of this is making any sense. You've you got to start, you know, giving us the resources and the this and that, you know, and don't price the games wrong, just all this stuff. And if you don't, I'm out of here. And they were like, see, see ya. And he couldn't believe that, but he's like, okay, whatever, you know. So he left and started LED. Well, no. He left and was just like playing with his kids for a couple months. He didn't know what he was going to do. I mean, he, right. he had enough money. He wasn't going to starve if he didn't you know, right. have a job right. the next day. But but he did, of course, miss out on 20 years severance pay by not, not being there. Really? <laughs> when they finally closed down. But, oh, man. <laughs> what the heck? That had dirt. Yeah. Um, so, and it was really weird the way they handled it. So you've got... Like, the pinball division is shutting down, but the same company is the slot division. So they could just hire us. I mean, we could just keep our seniority and vacation days and all that. We could just, you know, get jobs doing slot stuff if we wanted. And they don't want... Here's all these talented people. They don't want to let them go. But then you have Midway, who theoretically is a completely separate company at this point. It has nothing to do with it. But they kind of want all these talented people, too. Right. And they're mad that, you know, if they... St- Stick with slots, you know, they just nothing changes. They just go sit at a different desk, and that puts Midway at a disadvantage. They have to start over with seniority and all this stuff, vacation days, all this stuff. So they basically said, you're fired. You are out on the street. And now everybody has the same bad, you know, deal with either company. And I think it floored them that everybody was like, oh, okay, I'll go somewhere else. I mean, I, I think they thought they had leveled the playing field and people would just choose which of their two options. Well, most people chose option C, none of the above. Right. You know, not that many people went to work for either place right away. So more of them have come back since. But, um, you know, they just, you know, so I went and interviewed with the slot people. And, then, you know, it was basically, it was just kind of this sham, you know. Yeah, whatever, you can have a job if you want it. You know, they, 
they were trying to make it painless for everybody, but it really made them seem disinterested. Right. You know, and went to Midway, and they were a little more excited, but it's basically, yeah, if you want a job, you know, we know you're creative, we love Star Wars, we'll find somewhere to fit you in. Huh. You know, but it just, none of that was very exciting. Meanwhile, Larry had had this idea when he quit that what he'd really like to do is start up a little slot development company. Kind of. Why, was Larry always interested in slots? Well, no, but he had been in charge of this slot thing at Williams and had gotten really interested in it. Totally mm-hmm. understood the industry, knew there was obviously more money in that industry than in uh, pinball, and thought, you know, that would be kind of cool. It'd be kind of like the vid kids of uh, slot machines. You know, it's right. kind of early in this creative phase, and he could be this little independent developer and sell content and make money that way. But, of course, everybody he'd want to hire was still working at Williams. So right. he just kind of sat on that plan. Well, he woke up one day and found everybody out on the street and available. Right. You know, so he uh, very quickly put together kind of this idea and called a bunch of us in. And, you know, we had lunch down in Chicago, and he explained this whole idea. And, you know, I was kind of cool to the idea because I had done the whole, you know... Slot machine thing. Well, no, especially the whole little bootstrap company trying to make right. a go of it right. thing, and I didn't think my wife was going to be real keen on that idea. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, at the meeting I was like, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, it sounds interesting, but I, and he left with the impression that we all hated the idea, you know, including me, because we were all going, yeah, Larry, that'd be great, you know. And I and I explained to him later, this is why I think it's a great idea. But my wife, you know, at this point, she never wanted to leave Virginia, right? She's probably going to want to go right back to Virginia. In fact, the, the very same day William shut down, G.E. Fanick called me. Hi, you want to come back? You know, oh, we, really? we hear you don't have a job now. Now are you ready to, <laughs> now you've had your little fun making pinballs, are you ready to come back and work for us again? Um, but as it turned out, my wife had gotten real used to the area, you know, kind of settled in there and... Right. You know, so she wasn't all that keen to leave. And and we talked about it, and, you know, Larry wasn't starting a Professor Feathers. I mean, he was going to actually fund the thing, and it was going to be a real company and have paychecks, and we weren't going to have to right. eat, eat the product to stay alive. You know. <laughs> so so I got back to him and said, yeah, sure, you know, and two two of us did. Scott Slomiani and, uh, and I both right. said, sure, we'll do that. And so in the last few days of 1999 he started that company and uh, we've been doing slowly but surely real well ever since and you have been it took a little while right yeah it took a long time to get going i mean there for a long time the uh, the running joke was if larry had taken the money that he was pouring into this company and we were working with IGT, you know, with our slot designs. If he had simply taken that much money and bought IGT stock with it instead and just sat home and had fun, you know, playing with his kids for the longest time, that would have been a much more lucrative path, you know, if he'd just done that right, instead right. of trying to make this company. But in, in the end, I think it's going to work out for him. So. And basically, what you're making, you're doing slot machine designs and what, some sort of macromedia type thing? Right. We basically cobbled together a demo on the PC and director. The director. Used right. to be macromedia, now Adobe. It? Right. right. Um, so it's basically a fully playable design, just like it'll be in the casino. And, but you story. guys don't actually write the code, though. I mean, you write the code for, for you know, Direct. the flash code for director. Right. But IGT buys the concept. Right. And we, then they reprogram the whole thing. Right. We do the math, which is a big part of any of these games. We do the art. Um, sometimes we do the sounds. 
um, and we get this whole demo going. So I guess a lot of ideas are sold as napkin sketches, right? Right. But we actually have a fully playable game. You can sit down and play it for hours and get a feel for how the math is running and whether it's fun or volatile and all that. Right. So, I mean, that's part of our gimmick is that we do such a good job prototyping. Now, but, yeah, but then they take the concept, and we work with them, and they implement it on their own proprietary hardware. Right. And the interesting thing is, is while you guys were doing this, um, the guy you were working with is Joe Camico, right? Right. Larry and IGT. And Joe, who did work at Stern Data East Sega, left the IGT, and now Williams is out, and here you guys are basically working with the other pinball guy. Right. Actually, he had worked at Williams. Yeah, ago. right, early so, on. So he and Larry were good friends. I mean, even once they were, they were on the same bowling team. Right. Well, right. even once they were, you know, arch enemies, you know, at the two pinball companies, they were still friends. I mean, well, that was the big rumor is that Larry was passing stuff to Joe under the table. Hardly. That, oh, that was a big rumor. Hardly. That was a big rumor. <laughs> Joe had his ways of getting stuff and copying it even before Williams came out with it, but it wasn't oh, Larry. Really? It wasn't Larry. Yeah. It wasn't Larry? Like a uh, checkpoint. For instance, okay, it was, what, was what no you, accident. Their first dot matrix game actually. What do you mean out. it was no accident? They didn't just independently think of dot matrix as applied to pinball and just happened to come out with it a couple of weeks before T two or whatever the first Williams one was. I mean, oh. they they knew about that. They did. However, how, how did they know about a it? vendor? You know, you know, if some vendor says, "Ooh, Williams is buying these weird dot matrix displays from us," I, I don't know how it happened, but that kind of stuff. It's right. all over the industry. I mean, well, then, I mean, why did they come up with the, the small one that was half the size of yours? Who knows, right? Who knows? Cost, or they had only heard Dot Matrix and hadn't heard which one. Or who knows? Right, yeah. right. Well, but is no. there any other good conspiracy thoughts with, you know, Data East? Because you were always telling me that, that Data East was always copying Williams' designs. You know, well, in, well in, that's not my independent thought. I mean, that had come up long before I got into the industry. Right, right, right. But, but well, that, that was what they were very good at. Right, you know, yeah. Distilling down the essence of what made a Williams game good and repackaging it with a licensed theme. You know, they, Joe was really good at getting licenses and really good at distilling the essence of what made games good and kind of repackaging them. And, you know, more power to him. He made some very successful games. Wait, one thing that was what? A bigger death knell for Pinball 2000 than anyone appreciates what? is um, Farting Kids and Turds, South Park. I mean, that, that that game, I don't think, was a very good pinball game, but the theme was perfect and perfectly timed. Yeah. And so an operator is sitting here going, you know, I'm paying X thousand for this South Park and making a ton of money, and I'm paying lunch for Revenge from Mars and not making appreciably more money. What's the point? Right. You know, just through sheer random chance, a, a standard, boring, old technology pinball came out with a theme that people gravitated towards right at the exact same time you know that pinball 2000 came out and was supposed to convince everyone that the technology was where it was at well yeah and joe's real proud of the south park thing and the fact that you know i, I he claims it outsold revenge from mars i don't think it did but well by now it probably has with all the reruns but 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 it didn't it, outselling doesn't matter out earning that was the key an, an operator has a revenge in the south park and they're earning the same money and look how much more he paid for the revenge. Right. You know, all of a sudden he's got a bad taste in his mouth for Pinball 2000. Hmm. And then by the time he gets any Star Wars, all those fanboys are bored and on to the next thing, you know. Right. When it released in the U.S. So, um, you know, 
Hmm. Now, what about were you when you were working at the Williams? Were you responsible for or helped concept any of the? You know, like now you've got flipper assemblies. The right and the left are this. You know, the right and left paw are the same mechanical assembly. The interchangeable play fields. You know, all that kind of stuff. Were, did you help with any of that kind of stuff? I certainly gave them my opinions as an ex-operator when we were discussing a lot of that stuff. But no, no, no specific. No, so like okay, like for instance, the uh, putting the circuit board in the bottom. I'd owned Atari pinball machines, and I knew what a horrible idea that was. Right. I mean, it's just awful. But especially yeah, because crap falls off the playfield, shorts on the board. Right, and especially Atari, where the crap's always falling off the playfield. I mean, <laughs> mechanical assemblies breaking in two and screws shearing off. I mean, it was even worse with Ataris. So, I mean... But they ended up doing that in, in, in and pinball. But putting too. that cover on it. Nothing. Yeah, but they put a covers on. Atari no, had a cover. Right. Everybody they, they, had a cover. They had a sheet of plexiglass on four standoffs. Okay, that thing came off and got thrown away and was never seen again. Right. The Pinball 2000 cover was hinged, couldn't be left up when the playfield went down. It was sprung. Right. So it, I mean, but I've seen those break and I've seen them come off um, and I. But again, at least I, whether it was directly because of what I was yelling about or because everybody knew it, they addressed that concern. There was nowhere else to put it. Why, there wasn't enough room in the head? No. Huh. So they addressed that concern, at least. Well, well, so. Well, what else? What, what else? So now, you, you know, you're working for Larry. Yeah. And, um... Oh, so, you know, we, it, it was kind of nice to know someone there. I think people at IGT thought, oh, here's Joe's buddy Larry, you know, selling games. But, I mean, we, we actually had to earn our way in there with good games. So right. And it, how many years did it take... Before you guys were actually making money. Quite a few, right? Yeah, I mean, we had some games that went out there and were popular-ish, but, you know, they weren't runaway hits. And it was finally with uh, Multi-Strike Poker has been real popular and a whole bunch of variations of that. Right. Um, That was finally a a game that put us on the map. And who's working at LED now? Um, The original three were Larry and me and Scott Slomiani, also known as Scott Matrix. Right. um, To pinball playfield credit aficionados. Um, and we've since added um, Mark Molitor, who's not a pinball guy, he's an artist, and Bill Grubb, actually, we just hired. He had done a bunch of pinball and slot stuff in, in days gone by. So. Hmm. Uh, what was Bill responsible for in the pinball world? Uh, you know, it was before my time. When I got there, he had moved completely to slots, but I think he did Congo. I mean, I, <laughs> I know everyone's going to laugh, but... Um, <laughs> But I mean, he he did several games. Okay. Was one of them. You mean like as a as a designer or something? No, no, a programmer. Programmer. Yeah, programmer. Um, and then, uh, like in slot machines, he did the piggy banking and big bang piggy banking. You know, he was. Yeah, now that was a real popular yeah, machine. Yeah, he, he and Scott actually did that big bang piggy banking together. It was actually in the office right behind mine, so I got to hear that theme song a lot. But, right. Um, and then they did one of the first Monopoly slots too. That was real popular. Advanced hmm. Portable, hmm. which I can still sing the theme song to, but I won't. Yeah, good, good. good. Um, we don't really need you to. Okay, so you weren't there for any of the true. You didn't see like the uh, the Pinball Two Thousand Papa Duke versus uh, George meetings, right? Not the meetings. Um, I was looking at what uh, Cameron and John were doing with a. Uh, swoopy cabinet with a monitor facing forward. Okay. And all their, you know, kind of proof of concept where you hit a rubber band and something on the screen explodes, you know, kind of things. And scores, sweeps and stuff. 
Um, but then uh, the day George Gomez and Pat Waller brought in their holopin idea with the reflected screen, you know, we went, they actually had it in a room at Midway for some reason. Um, and we went over there. These are the separate companies, remember? All right. Um, we went over there to look at it, and we were all just blown away. I mean, I'm like anyone else. You tell me video and pinball, and I'm thinking Chicago Coin Super Flipper, Caveman, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man. No, you mean Baby Pac. Baby Pac-Man, Granny and the Gator, you know. Right. Like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Why are you destroying my mechanical pinball machine? But we all saw it, and we're just blown away. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow, you know, that actually kind of works. You know, that's kind of cool. And then... So, like, within a day or two, John and Cameron had flipped their monitor and put in a mirror and everything and done a, a thing where literally the ball hits a rubber band and something right there explodes. And it was, it was some Star Wars thing, because they were still trying to get the Star Wars license, so they were kind of, you know, going right. down that path. And brought everyone in and just totally blown away. I mean, like, Neil came in and was like, you know, oh, my God, I've seen the future of pinball, you know. Just I, I heard that, though, Neil was pissed, though, when he saw it. Why? Well, you know, he's trying to kill pinball. This conspiracy theory again. Well, at least to those of us in the room, he did not express pissedness. He was, <laughs> he was just blown away and giddy and like, oh, my God, you know, this is... Right. You know, because... You explain it, and it doesn't make too much sense, but you see it, that a ball hits something on the screen and makes it blow up. I mean, that's just, that was an amazing thing to see. Right. And John and Cameron had managed to make it, you know, George's thing was real, it was being run by an Amiga, and it was kind of of hokey. You could say, okay, I kind of get it. Right. But, I mean, John and Cameron made it real. Just all, it was literally just a ball hitting a rubber band and something exploding, and it just, like... You know, oh my God! I can't believe we just saw that. You know, that's right. That's just amazing. And what did they do? What were they doing when you guys went to uh, you know the in the Papaduke model, you know the pre pinball two thousand model? Mm-hmm. Were those guys writing everything in C? Yeah, I mean it was it was the same system that became pinball two thousand. It was Tom Uban's you know architecture. Oh, so you mean you guys were actually working on pinball two thousand before? You know, before it was the um, uh, the Gomez model. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was going to be PC motherboard based and have a monitor. And John right. had like this 25 inch monitor as the whole back box. Right, right. Um, and he had this really swoopy, I mean, he's real into industrial design. He had a really swoopy cabinet that was going to fold up and be real easy for an operator to move. And stuff. Unlike Pinball 2000, which, yeah. yeah. Now, why did that happen like that? Various reasons. I mean, just that's, there's no way to fold it the way that was done and the dimensions got downsized because of shipping crate concerns. You know, how many can you fit in a container? Right. I mean, the first Pinball 2000, even in the Gomez design, had the normal like play field. Right. But then they started calculating that they were going to get, you know, six less in a shipping container to Europe and they couldn't have that. So they downsized it until it fit. They just kept knocking it back till they could get the same number in a shipping container. Huh. Interesting. Um, which kind of pissed everyone off a little bit. But. So even though the size of the Pinball 2000 was bigger than, say, uh, a Williams High Speed, it wasn't as big as, like, a Terminator 2. Right. Or I, I don't know. 
high speed, however far you have to go back, the standard pinball size, you know, EM, early solid state, it actually was about exactly that size. Right. But the problem is, the way the cabinet's designed, it looks really stubby. I mean, you look at that and you're right. oh, God, that thing's like half as long as a WPC playfield. Right, right. So, it, while, you know, it wasn't really that short, it sure looked like it was. So that, yeah. That annoyed a lot of people. Right. Um, Hmm. So, well, what else, did management do anything else to you guys that that made you know your your lives more difficult or easier or anything? No, I mean, I guess a lot of people had been looking at what John and Cameron were doing and going, "So what?" You know, a, you know, a monitor and a PC motherboard and you know whatever. Who cares? Why, why is this going to excite people? In fact, I think that's. You know specifically what George and Pat were saying, which is why they ran off to Pat's garage to design something better. Right. So, you know, no one thought it was bad, but no one could quite see why everyone would rush to it. You know what? What was? Yeah, other than making pinball more expensive. Yeah, and you know you could do some cool stuff with the monitor, but it wasn't fundamentally a different game. And and there were some people who thought you know pinball ought to be you know there ought to be a sea change in pinball to really drive this point home. And, you know, and there was a lot of politics back and forth of, you know, who's right, who's wrong, and all that. But, but again, once they brought their thing in, everybody could see, oh, wow, you know, wow, that, that is something drastically different. And it isn't Chicago Coin Super Flipper. I mean, that's, yeah. that's still pinball as we know it. But with, you know, basically instead of hot stamping a drop target... You can put whatever you want on the drop target, and it can change throughout the game. You know, well, right. they, they didn't use drop targets, but um, but they could have, could have, yeah. But yeah. again, and it was funny. Um, you know, John in the early days of the Star Wars game had all kinds of weird stuff going on up the center with you know what you know, what the ball interacted with to make stuff happen. And you know, I finally looked at it and went, you know, nothing. Nothing we're doing feels better than that day you just stretched a rubber band between two posts and put a switch behind it and made something blow up on the screen. And that's so he ended up designing, which was basically that rubber band stretched across two posts, but it could go up and down so you could get the ball behind it. And that, you know, that became the center thing in Star Wars just because that alone felt so good. A ball sinks into a rubber band just the right way that interacting with something on the screen blowing up, it just feels perfect. I mean, that. Hmm. That was where that all came from. Wow. So you would have stayed at Williams forever sure. doing this stuff. Yeah. I mean, and did you see Wizard Box? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, that, that was more... Once once you pull back half the orders for Star Wars, now all of a sudden you got to pull back your production schedule. Right? Now you thought you were going to be making Star Wars yeah. over the next year. Now all of a sudden you're making them for another three weeks, you know? When you can't ever have the factory shut down. Rule number one at Williams is the factory always has something to make. No matter what else has to happen, the factory always has something to make. And what was the reason for that? They just didn't want to lay off anybody? Yeah, I mean, that's the the whole business was driven by the factory. It's all it's a very manufacturing-based business. Right. I'll, I'll get into an aside on that later. But um, So now all of a sudden, the next game in line better be ready. You know, it better be ready when Star Wars finishes running, which isn't too far from now. So all hands on deck. Right. So they actually put me on Wizard Blocks in the in the week or two before Expo. I was actually doing code for Wizard Block. And how did you feel about that game? Um, it was actually coming along quite well. I, um, you know, it was kind of a strange theme. Yeah. Um, 
And who came up with the theme? Was that Pat? I, I assume so, yeah. I'm not sure anybody really got that at first, but, but I mean, once you played it, it was kind of fun. Right. And, and he was doing some really interesting thing with the light and the interaction, and, and again, kind of a breakout thing where you don't just make a, a box blow up on the screen, the next box on top actually falls, and, you know, and that's cool. And, you know, it was, it was, we were having a lot of fun with that game. We would actually, um, in the afternoons, in the, on the game in uh, Lewis's office, he was the main programmer on it, we'd all go in and kind of play a four-player tournament on you know whatever the code had stated had gotten to for that day, and we were having a blast. I mean, it was basically at that point only one mode, um, but it was it was a lot of fun, and it had great potential. Now, you know, I guess Gene is still trying to somehow make wizard blocks, which to any of us that worked on it, it seems like nonsense because the game, you know, it was, it was just a it had one mode and some switches worked and stuff. It's not even remotely a complete game. I don't think it would be very fun to play long term, but I guess he's trying to somehow. Yeah, so we'll so. figure it out. Um, now you said that you had a manufacturing aside. What were you talking about? Oh, okay. So the the um, the line can never stop. Right. So looking way out on Pinball 2000, how long it was going to take to develop, and the Star Wars movie, you know, that game couldn't release before May 19th, and just all this stuff. There was going to be this gap between the end of the last WPC game, which was Cactus Canyon, and the first. Pinball 2000 game, which was Revenge for Mars. So what are we going to do to fill that gap? I mean, you can't have a gap. Um, so, Big Bang Bar. Somebody came up with the idea of, engineering's all done. We'll just drop that in there and make it. So, the engineering's not really all done, of course, because it's made with Capcom hardware. So, right. so we got two of them from Capcom. One to sit around and play as kind of a reference version, and then one to William's Eyes. You mean you actually bought them? Well, as part of this whole deal to make the game, we were going to sub-license the design from them. Mm-hmm. They gave us, two. and they were willing to do that. Yeah. Well, they weren't in the business anymore. Right. You know, it was going to be free money to them. Um, so we we had one that uh, Jim Shirt and the boys in the prototype lab swapped out all the coils for Williams coils, um, and. All the assemblies, put in William stuff? Uh, yeah. Any, I mean, a lot of assemblies, you can just swap the coil in. It's good enough to get you an idea. Because Capcom drove their coils differently. Like, their flippers were really strong. They were like duty cycle or something. So, you know, there was an issue of whether a Williams coil could actually get the balls up the ramps and stuff. And then uh, um, Graham sat down and... You know, would put WPC hardware in the back. And Graham, who's Graham? He's British. Uh, Graham West. Graham West. So Graham West sat down with, you know, they put the WPC hardware in it, and he had his development system, and he set about rewriting the Big Bang Bar code. Did you guys have source code to go by? Uh, even if we did, it wouldn't have mattered. Okay. I mean, well, just I mean, we were basically out the rules and make. But that's why we had the second game, okay, the reference game. We could go right. play, and you know, and also for people to play and say what they liked and didn't like. So yeah, you we could, could compare maybe, them, maybe, and maybe improve the design a little bit. Right, right. So we were well along that path when we actually had the exact opposite thing in the end. I I don't remember which it was. I think Revenge got moved up a little bit because they wanted to release it at the show, ATEI mm-hmm. in London. So that got moved up. Something else had run a little longer, you know, had been slightly more successful than they expected. So all of a sudden what ended up happening was Cactus Canyon got cut short. 
So instead of having a gap, they actually took a game that before it ever even got running, they cut it off at the knees and stopped making it. All right. So, so then that was Big Bang Bar. It never went anywhere. Well, you did have Big Bang Bar then running under WPC hardware. Yes. I, it was not 100% complete, but it was really close. And how did it compare to the Capcom version? I, one of the biggest problems was the flipper strength. It really was hard to get those balls up those really steep ramps. Um, but but all in all, he Graham had done a great job. I mean, I mean, he had all the dot matrix animation and everything. Because didn't he have to redo the art? Yeah, again, I, it wasn't a hundred percent, but they had an awful lot of it. Huh? Um, where that, are these ROMs? That's well, what I want to know. Now, here's the thing. Of course, once the deal falls through, uh, they had to put it back. You couldn't hand back this thing to Capcom. Oh, with all the Williams stuff in yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, so what happened? Well, I, I don't really know. I know... I'm well, pretty, I'm it never got put back. It didn't? Because no. Pazak ended up with it, right? Pazak ended up with it, right. and then Pazak paid somebody to put all the Capcom stuff back in the game. Uh, okay, he bought so all the it parts did get put back, but not by Williams. Anyway. But not by Williams. No, I wonder if Williams had to pay Capcom anything for hosing them like that. But you know... I had heard that they never ended up paying Capcom anything anyways, that there was a big dilemma about that. The light off? Yeah. I heard there was some kind of big dilemma about yeah, it and that. Yeah. By the time Williams shuts down, they're not caring much about anything. So right, right. I don't, I don't right, know what happened right. there. Again, that was by definition after I was gone. So that, that whole fiasco of, of trying to make Big Bang Bar in a Williams game... It just didn't really work out. Right. I mean, the the thinking being all the engineering's done, we can get this done much quicker than coming up with our own game from scratch. Well, that, you know, might have been slightly true, but more or less that was that was incorrect. It, it did not uh, what about, uh, turn what, out that way because we had, what to about do, the ROMs? had to do so much re-engineering. What about the ROMs? Where are those? Well, they never got made into ROMs, of course. It was a development system. Oh, so you mean there was never really a set of ROMs? So no. we couldn't play this in MAME and compare the two, or, no. No. or some sick puppy put all Williams parts in their game right. and do a few boards and see what yeah. happens. Yeah, no. 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 So it never just... actually got to that point. No. You know, somewhere on a server somewhere must be the files Graham was working on. But, but none of that stuff survived. Yeah. So when you guys all got thrown out, you know, you told me a story about there was some company that was going to buy uh, Williams, and you guys were, like, trying to get... Oh, okay. Well, so that was a really weird week. So I, we come in Monday, and I move all my stuff to my new office, remember? The, oh, yeah. The yeah. Kahuna Zone is what we called it. We needed a code name for the Star Wars project that wouldn't let anyone know it was Star Wars. Right. So someone came up with the name Kahuna. Right. So with all the vendors, when we're getting stuff made, it's just, this is our game, Kahuna. Everyone thinks it's like a surfing game or something. Right, right. So the, we called the uh, the place we were all locked in, the Kahuna Zone, and that had been dismantled, and we were all moving into the offices. So I hadn't even really unpacked mm-hmm. when we had our meeting, and lo and behold, we're all at work. So basically, I had to unpack a little bit to sort out the Williams stuff versus my personal stuff, but I was pretty much ready to go. I could just haul all my stuff home. Right. But over the next week, they let people come in and, you know, take their stuff home. They all, you know, people that had gotten games, you know, the sample games or whatever, hadn't always taken them home. A lot of people had them in their office to play and stuff. So there was a lot of crap to take home. So and, I was, they, and they let you in, even though they cut your cards and your server access. Yeah, but, but basically they weren't trying to be mean. You know, it was, we're shutting down the company, we're sorry, we know you're all in mourning, but come in, clean out your stuff. And, you know, basically they were writing gate passes for just about anything you wanted to take home. I mean, they weren't trying to 
Right. You know, no, no one was trying to rip Williams off, and Williams wasn't trying to make sure you didn't take a pencil home that belonged to Williams. They were just, you know. Right. So, um, I was also hauling a lot of stuff for other people. I mean, I'm the guy with the truck, and so, you know, I was hauling people's Star Wars home and stuff. And then, uh, we got this idea that, you know what, it would be really nice for historical reasons if wizard blocks didn't stay there. Didn't stay there. You know, there were three or four built play fields. You know, we really ought to take one home. So, you know, the world can someday see what that was. Right. Um, And, you know, again, nothing's ever going to happen to any of this stuff. They've they've turned it off. It's it's just all going to go in the dumpster someday. So, you know, we basically had that all wrapped up. And I had it on a hand truck in the freight elevator with a whole bunch of other stuff that Pat was taking home. And it was heading out to my truck. And, uh, you know, Pat comes running down the hall, wait, wait, you know, Williams is trying to sell the company. I, there were a couple of times that happened. I think this may have been the, uh, the German distributor. Novus. Novus, yeah. Or Nova. Or Nova, yeah, yeah or Nova. whatever. Right, I think some of them had come in. To you know, look. To look. Shopping, window shopping. Well, they were floored. You know, why didn't you ask us? Why did you shut this company down? You know, fully 50% of our business is Williams Pinballs, and you just pulled the rug out from under us. You, and you didn't even ask us right. know, if we wanted to buy the company. So they flew over there. This was like Tuesday or Wednesday that week. And so Pat comes around down the hallway, you know, they, they want to buy the company, you know. And, and yeah, so, we've got to show them, right, them Wizard Box. And we just, you know, the play field we happened to take was the one that was out of the game that was most ready to show. So we hustled it all back and put it together and showed them, and, you know, nothing ever came of it. Yeah, and, and then we couldn't get the game back yeah, out. And I was done. I, I wasn't hauling any more stuff. Nice. So. Wow. So then Gene ended up with it. Right. Now, what about the other playfields? You said that there was more playfields? He has all of them. Oh, Gene has them all? Yeah, they're in various states of, you know, difference and completions. So, right. But there, was, there would have been one in the game I was working on, and the one in the game Lewis was working on, and there may have been one other complete one, hmm. but that was like an earlier rev. Right, right, right. So he could conceivably have more than one wizard box. Gene. Yeah. Well, now that he's made Big Bang Bar, he could just make... Wizard blocks, right? We know he can make pinball machines. It only takes six or seven years. Well, that's nothing compared to the Australian guys. And, and speaking of that, that's more conspiracy theory than the fact that they sold it to 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 Gene and to Mr. Australia. Is that you know they were selling the company to people they knew damn well probably couldn't do that good of a job with the company. Right. If you were going to shut down a company, despite it seeming like maybe that wasn't such a good idea. The last thing you'd want is somebody proving you wrong. Right. So okay, that's where that conspiracy theory comes from, whether it's true or not. I mean, because that, that's all based on the previous conspiracy theory. Of <laughs> but but yes, you certainly wouldn't want to sell it to a bunch of ex Williams employees who might make a go of it. Because right. then your shareholders would go, "What the hell? You shut down this company and they're making millions. What were you thinking?" <laughs> not that that necessarily would have happened, but yeah. Um, you let me run it, I would have given the games away cheap to bring in uh, yeah. game customers. Okay, Professor Feathers. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, well, I'd like to thank you, Duncan, for doing this. Duncan was very reluctant. I had to really... I've been bothering him for how many... What, two years now? At least. To do this, and, and you just didn't want to do this at all. You had to bribe me with backblast pictures. Yeah, I had to bribe you. I had to get you here and do this. You wouldn't do it over the phone. It had to be a face-to-face. Yeah. And I just better hope that the tape I'm recording this on, <laughs> I don't have any problems with, because that'll really be a problem. So, okay. Well, hey, thanks, Duncan. Was uh, it that bad? No, it was good. Okay, you sure? Let's do it again sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it turns out that I did forget to ask Duncan something, so I actually have to call him on the phone. I hope he talks to us. Let's try it. Hi, this is Duncan. Duncan, it's Clay. Can you hear me? Okay, so I forgot to ask you about Tempest Tubes. Tell me about Tempest Tubes and what brought that on. Well, you know, I was had already been reverse engineering asteroids by that time, and having lots of fun with that. And um, once we opened Professor Feathers and we could all play Tempest free all night long when no one else was, we all got very good at it. Um, so we wanted to make it harder, and I figured one way would be to make Stranger Tube Shapes be trickier to play. And how much work was it to uh, to come up with this? Well, you know, I was pretty familiar with how Atari put together their hardware and their software and stuff. And I didn't really want to go through the whole process again of, uh, you know, trying to disassemble the whole program, although I did dump it out. Again, by this time I had the ability to borrow an Apple II. I didn't own my own yet. Um, so I did dump the whole program out. Um, but then I thought, you know, if, if I were Atari's programmers, what I'd do is make like a big uh, data table with all the tube shapes. You know, somewhere there's just going to be a bunch of data that defines the shapes of those tubes. So instead of really trying to figure out how the program worked, all i got to do is figure out where that data is and how it's put together. So I just started, um, you know, I'd go through the program, and you could tell anywhere it didn't disassemble into clean code. It was a data table. So I just started stomping on all those. You know, I'd just, like, program them as all zeros, each set I'd find, and see what got whacked in the game. And, you know, the you know the, the text would disappear here, or something else weird would happen there. And uh, But then finally I found one that just made all the tube shapes go completely wacky. Like, okay, you know, I've at least found the right spot. So then I just kept, you know stomping on the data in logical ways and seeing the results and refining it till I doped out how it was all put together. Is, um... To a lot of EEPROMs. That's, I, I didn't have a good EEPROM eraser, um, so I went to the local lighting supply store, and I, you know, I had the right wavelength of light I needed, and they had some sort of grow lamp that would do, but it was like a, a four-foot tube. So I bought a four-foot fluorescent fixture in this tube and put it all in a big box. So I could erase, you know, a couple of hundred EEPROMs at a time, and that came in handy because I went through a lot of them doing this. So you're saying that you couldn't, you had no emulator to run this on the Apple II. You could only disassemble it there, reassemble it, and then burn it to an EEPROM. Yeah, heavens no. I had no uh, development system. No, I, wa- I couldn't even reassemble it at that point. Well, I guess it was 6502. I could have, but again, it was just data. So all I was doing, you know, once I found the chip, where the data was located, I could load the original chip into memory in the Apple and then just, you know, manually change bytes and write it back to a new EEPROM. Um, so I just did that. You know, I took a lot of notes and figured out how it all worked. You know, there was 
there were data bytes that specified the endpoints, you know, of each of the joints, and then different ones that specified, you know, which side of the resulting line your guy was playing on, and other ones that determined whether the loop closed back on itself or not. Um, and I just, again, figured it all out. There are 16 shapes, so there were groups of 16 bytes that did each of these different things. And then I sat down and, you know, on graph paper, designed new tubes and uh, programmed them up, and they worked, you know. It did what I expected it to do. Um, and, you know, I just tried a whole bunch of them until I came up with a set I liked. Um, I had more. You know, I actually did, like, um, tube shapes for each of the letters of Tempest, like in the logo on the header panel. Uh, but those weren't really fun to play, so I didn't use those. But, um, so we got a second Tempest at Professor Feathers and ran both of them. We had the stock one and then the one with Tempest tubes. Um, How did it earn? Uh, real well. I mean, there were a lot of people that had gotten really good at Tempest, and it was good to have a challenge again. And, of course, since it was a challenge, they were putting a lot more quarters in it. Um, but they liked it, you know, they liked that idea. How did you disseminate this? Well, I, for years I wouldn't. There was a guy, another operator in town I knew, and he eventually talked me into giving him two copies of it for his two Tempests. Uh, you know, I assumed they did okay with that. And, you know, just people knew about this a little bit, but, um, you know, there was no Internet back then, so it was just kind of you know, people locally in Virginia knew about it. But then eventually, you know, when I was on... Rec Games Video Arcade Collecting, RGVAC, um, I told some people about it and eventually um, posted a copy of it to Jess Askey's site. Right. Uh, I can't remember the name of it anymore. Um, and, you know, eventually people used it. Um, but I was just concerned, of course, with Atari coming after me. I wasn't real keen, you know, to have that happen. Well, why did you think they would care? Well, you know, I was distributing code that was all of theirs except for, you know, 80 bytes. You know, who knows what they would want to do. Um, so again, Jess put it on his site with no attribution to me, although, you know, some people knew. I don't know how widely known it was. but And then eventually, while I was working at Williams, the guys from Digital Eclipse um, were doing a... Uh, you know, an old Atari game emulator thing for the PC. And they had Tempest in there, and they somehow figured out it was me and got in touch with me and wanted permission <laughs> to use the Tempest tubes in the uh, in their compilation for the PC, which I thought was pretty funny. I was scared about Atari being mad, and now they were asking my permission. Huh. Um, and at that point, since I was working for Williams, who was, combined with Midway, who owned Atari, I figured out, what the heck, you know, they're not going to come after me now, right? Right. So, yeah, I was like, fine, you can tell the world I did it and, and put it in there. Um, and they actually paid me a 1000 bucks for that, which I thought was pretty funny. All You know, 20 years earlier, I had wasted an entire weekend locked in my house doping all this out just for my own amusement, and now it finally paid off. So you, you did the whole thing in a weekend, huh? Yeah, I, I took one of our Tempest's home um, from Professor Feathers, uh, borrowed the Apple II for the entire weekend and just didn't come out again until I finished it. <laughs> Man, so when you disassembled the um, uh, the Asteroids thing, did you ever do anything with that? Well, yeah. There was a, a guy 
um, that played with us there. He, he went to UVA, um, and, you know, he was real good at asteroids, and he eventually went off and became a researcher at the University of Denver. And he was trying to do, like, complex skill acquisition studies, you know, how do people learn how to do these things. And it's it's really tough, you know, to try to study that and weed out all the other factors and you know, they have really expensive machines, but nobody has a budget to buy those that can try to help this. Or, you know, he could pay someone a whole bunch of money to design him something real custom. And everybody's using PDP-11s and all these expensive simulators and stuff. And he said, hey, you know, there was that guy at Professor Feathers where I used to play that was trying to figure out what made asteroids tick. I wonder what he ever did with that, because, you know... In a, in this little game that I'm real familiar with, I know there's a lot of really complex skills going on there, but it's just a few of them, and maybe I'd be able to study them. And that it's real cheap hardware. You get asteroids for a couple hundred bucks. So he rang me up and said, you know, can you do all this? Can you can you make it do anything I want it to do? And I said, yeah, at this point I probably can. You know, I, I basically had back created an entire source for the game. I could actually recompile, reassemble, you know, source after changing it without having to poke bytes in. Hmm. So, you know, he he then went to Atari and said, you know, I'm doing this project, i got to use asteroids, I'd love to, you know, pay you some money out of my budget to make asteroids do anything I want it to do. Um, but if you don't want to do that, I've got this guy who says he can do it, you know. And they said, yeah, whatever, go for it. You know, we have no interest at all, but we don't care what you do to your own machine. Um, so he came back to me, and, you know, I guess in the scheme of what it was really worth, he paid me nothing, but, you know, I made a couple thousand dollars here and there. Um, just basically kept track of my time and charged him an hourly rate and ended up doing a whole bunch of different things with it. Um, Is it anything that uh, gaming people would find interesting? Uh, probably not. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I did a couple of other variations just along the way that were humorous, like, um, you know, enormously big rocks, um, floating across the screen, or itty bitty bitty little spaceship, you know, just weird variations like that. Or, uh, the flying saucer would come out and actually, you know, chase you. It would always be seeking your position. That was a little annoying. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, again, on the Apple, you could have really long file names. I always had humorous file names for these variations. Like that last one was, you can run, but you can't hide a roid. <laughs> it's a geek joke, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we made variations like, um, like we made square rocks, you know, with, with, with trying to do... Uh, you know, these, like the ship would be pointed straight up and you couldn't turn it. And this rock would come in from the left to the right and you just simply have to intercept it. I mean, that's a very complex skill, but a very, you know, very narrow thing you can study. Just how quickly do people, you know, learn to do intercept across a distance with known speeds. But again, to, to make it more obvious what was going on and, and to be a little more precise, we had to use square rocks. So there was none of this you know, did it really hit that little jaggy edge or whatever. Hmm. Um, and then I guess at, at one point we were doing basically the full game, but he wanted to do um, eye tracking, like to see where people were looking. Are they looking ahead of the rocks or, you know, what, what's going on when they're playing? So I helped him figure out that 
he could take his eye tracking rig and uh if he got an asteroids deluxe cabinet and we ran just you know the regular asteroids board in it he could pop the mirror up like half an inch and sneak his camera through there pointing at people's eyes because um, asteroids deluxe the the monitor is down low and then bounces up in a mirror so that way he could get everything lined up and actually track where they were looking at the time hmm. and i had in addition to rigging up the whole system to allow me to download code in the game which of course allowed him to download these various variations on the fly he didn't have to program eproms and pry them in and out um, then I also came up with something going the other direction that would um, grab 60 times a second all the, the interesting data out of the game um, so that he could study, you know, when the shot was released versus where the rock was and everything. And the only thing at the time that was fast enough and had enough memory to capture that was a, uh, a, a PC XT because it had extended memory. And he got it like a Zenith version of that. So I created hardware to go the other direction, too. It basically had a shadow copy of the RAM in Asteroids and grabbed it 60 times a second um, up to the PC. And then, of course, once you've got all that data and the eye-tracking data, you have to merge them somehow, and the, we figured out the best way to do it was visually. So I created another version of Asteroids that would take data back from the PC at 60 frames a second and just replay the game on the screen. Um, but then we'd add like a little target that corresponded to where the people were looking. Um, so you could actually, you know, watch their, their game and see where they were looking at the time. Because uh, originally he'd been kind of like photo, or uh, videotaping them to try to figure out, you know, to go back and figure out what was going on on the screen. But this allowed them to just run subjects all day long and not even care, and then they could go back later and study the data, you know, step it frame by frame and study it in real detail and do statistical analysis on it. So. Did anything ever come of this research? Oh, he he wrote several papers. One of them I'm even a co-author on. Despite having never finished college, I'm a, I'm a published author on a scientific research paper. But, uh, I'm, you know, he, he kept doing that. I guess eventually, you know, even that got too hokey for him, and he went on to bigger and better things. Right, right. And then actually, it's funny, because that led to <laughs> a friend of mine in Charlottesville knew all that history, and he had a friend who was in the psychology research department at UVA who had somehow wrangled a deal where Atari worked with him with a race-driving panorama, the three-screen driving game. Right. You know, full real-time 3D and everything. He actually convinced them that they should be selling these as really cheap driving simulators to police departments, research departments, and stuff. And they kind of, you know, they started down that path because, you know, the real driving simulators are millions of dollars in this thing. Well, nearly that. So he had kind of worked with them and they had written a special version of the code and a way for him to program in little scripts for how all the things worked. Um, but it just, you know, it wasn't working. He, he wanted it to do things and they didn't know what he wanted. And, and so basically what you had was a research geek and a bunch of game geeks that just didn't speak the same language. But, you know, I knew both languages and, and my friend said, you really ought to help this guy. So I came in there and got on calls with him and the Atari guys and translated back and forth. And we, we finally doped out and they got it fixed up to mostly do what he needed. But, 
about the time I was really getting going on it, they were kind of starting to lose interest in it, you know. I, I think probably they were worried about Midway buying them. You know, I don't remember the exact timing, but... Um, so at, at some point, they finally said, okay, you know, it just it is what it is. You know, this is the final version, and you're welcome to use it, uh, but we're not going to make any more changes. Um, so for a couple more years, I basically programmed up the game for this guy in Atari's little script language and had to find ways around the few remaining bugs um, and, and did all that quite successfully. And, I, you know, I helped. Um, th- there were several research groups at this point that were using this, and he held a little conference of all of them at UVA, and I gave a little presentation on, you know, here's how to work around all the bugs and make everything work. And, um, so it was actually kind of cool. And he was doing, like, drunk driving research and um, diabetic insulin problem research and old people driving research and um, so he'd get all these groups in, and, and they could set up these driving scenarios and gauge their reactions under various conditions. Um, and it was all, you know, it was pretty cool. Um, they ran into interesting problems like um, old people. You set them down in a kind of cartoony 3D driving simulator, and they drive, and they just immediately throw up. <laughs> they totally get car sickness. And normally... in you know, one classic way to get car sickness is you're moving and your inner ears and everything tell you you're moving, but you're like reading a book or something, which isn't moving. So your eyes and your, you know, your motion sensors in your head aren't corresponding and you get car sick. This was completely the opposite. Their eyes were telling them they're moving, but their body's telling them they're not, and they got car sick. It was really strange. Huh. But just so all... they had to give them like Dramamine before they ran it. But whereas kids who played video games before had no problem at all. They just drove. Oh, okay. Um, so people that didn't have the video game experience were the ones throwing up. Right, exactly. They just their, their body couldn't handle the mismatch between the visual motion and the lack of actual motion, which is the opposite of normal car sickness. Um, basically, it, there was this... It was the basic race-driving track, but kind of limited, it, and it was kind of turned into this giant circuit could go around and around, and there were a couple of little side roads you could go on, but everything else was kind of blocked off. But they'd added in objects for, like, stop lights and stop signs and, you know, stop lines on the road and stuff. So we could set up these intersections and have cross-traffic and stuff and see how they handled it. Um, and, you know, I set up, again, I, I just did what they told me to, but I set up some kind of mean scenarios. You'd be coming up to a green light and... Um, you know, there'd be a guy waiting to your right at his red light, and right as you got to the intersection, he'd just pull out in front of you. And, um, you know, they'd see how people would react, because it had brakes and everything. Um, and that was actually freaking people out too much, because they'd invariably hit the car and, like, start weeping. You know, they, just, they, just, they couldn't handle having just killed someone. You know, they just T-boned someone. You know, it's just a video game, but some people, you know, who hadn't played video games... So we had to, like, back off on that a little bit, not make it so mean. So this was all way before, like, you know, um, you know, Cruising USA and Rush the Rock and all that kind of stuff. Right. right. Oh, yeah. I mean, race driving, or well, I guess hard driving was the original, and then race driving was just way before everything else in terms of real-time 3D driving games. Right. right. Um, and it was tricky. I mean, I, I had a real job, obviously. I was doing this at night and on weekends and stuff. So I'd go in there and work for hours and hours and hours and come out there in the dark 
and hop in my car after doing, you know, loop the loop and stuff on this thing for hours. Um, and just, you know, I'd want to drive like a madman going home. It was kind of tr- tricky to, to get myself to, no, no, okay, we're back on the road obeying the real laws of physics now. But also, you know, I could take my kids out there on the weekends and stuff and play race driving panorama for free eternally. They, they had a lot of fun. Because you could also you could switch the game back into normal game mode to just play the normal game. Oh, oh. and now what language was this written in? Uh, I, I don't know. I think the game was 6809s or something. But Atari had this little scripting language that they used. You could basically, um, I, I mean, it was just a script they created, and they had a little compiler for it, and you you download it into the game, and it would just run. But it, you know, it was basic commands to like move objects around the world and give them speeds and directions and stuff. Right. And, and you, like, create them and destroy them. And, and that was part of the problem. The create and destroy thing didn't work right. So at the beginning of the game, and there was also, despite them saying there wasn't, there was actually a hard limit of the number of items you could create. It was, like, 28 or something. Um, so basically, for any of these scenarios, I had to create every object we were ever going to use, and we were fairly limited in that number. You know, every stop sign, every street light, everything. Um, create them all and hide them somewhere else in the world where you couldn't see them. And then just, you know, move them in front of you as you were going around. So instead of creating all the stop signs at every intersection, I had four stop signs. And just, you know, it was a big, you know, shell game to move them around ahead of the person driving. You know, after they got past an intersection... The stop signs would then, you know, disappear out of there and move on to the next intersection. Hmm. Crazy world. Right. Right. Well, pretty cool. Uh, you know, that's some kind of interesting work. I mean, that kept you busy for a while. Yeah, I mean, it was it was weird. Like, there was probably only one person on the planet that could have done that, and that was me, and I just happened to be there at the right time. I I spoke geek, I spoke uh, game geek and physical researcher, psychology researcher geek. Clinical clinical geek and game geek. Right, sure. Uh, and I spoke both of those and, and got the two sides together and worked out most of their issues until Atari gave up on it. And, you know, I have no idea if they ever figured out I was the guy that that other researcher had been talking about years ago. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, once I went to work for Williams, I actually met, you know, some of these guys at trade shows and stuff. That's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, we remember that guy. <laughs> do they do they have uh, you know disdain for you or what? No, no, no. They just you know they they uh, they just knew they'd kind of you know gone out there and done that whole project and then abandoned it and they just kind of wanted to forget about it. But I mean, they'd really they created like this whole division to sell simulators and then decided not to after all. Right. Well, cool. Anything else we should talk about? You can think of it. Okay. All right, Duncan, you take care. Thanks a lot for letting me call you. I'd really like to thank Duncan Brown for joining us tonight on TopCast. Uh, greatly appreciate him allowing me to interview him while he was shooting all these back glass pictures at my house. It was uh, great having him here. And I hope you all can come back and hear us again on another episode of TopCast.